there's just no getting around it. This is going to be one of our most negative episodes. If that's not your jam, I totally understand. Feel free to skip this one, but we just, this is how it is. I'm Elizabeth Flux. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast. Each month, we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month, we're reading The Science of Discworld 4, Judgment Day, or depending on how long it takes you to read it, Judgment Hours, Judgment Week, Judgment Month. <laughs> and, and we have two returning guests. Firstly, the Reverend Dr. Avril Hannah-Jones. Welcome, Avril. Hello. And Dr. Charlotte Pizarro. Welcome, Charlotte. Hello. It's so nice to have both of you back on the show. I know, right? Charlie, you were last here for Nation. Yes. It wasn't all that long ago. Yes, it was lovely. Uh, it's good to be back. Thank you for including me again. You're welcome. And Avril, we had you way back in the early days of the podcast. I think it was only in our first or second year. IRL. Yeah, to discuss uh, small gods. Yeah, back in the days when we could meet up in person. Yeah, it was in the before times. Mm. We, yeah. we all sat around a table. In my kitchen, if I remember rightly. You made us tea. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even make myself tea today. What is going on? How standards have slipped here at Pratchett. <laughs> and yes, you have both agreed to join us. And I thought it was really important. I always knew I wanted to get two guests for this book when we finally got up to it because, well, we'll, we'll get to how appropriately they describe the premise of the book. But from the cover and the, the premise of the book, it is set up to have, you know, science versus religion. And we'll talk about how valid a dichotomy that is, I'm sure, and how they present it in the book. But uh, I, I didn't want to do this like our other Science of Discworld books with just one person who was a science expert. I also wanted to get someone who knew about the other side of this so-called debate, if we can say that. I feel like we're, I'm tipping our hat quite early, aren't I? Really, a little bit. I didn't like it. <laughs> I was going to say it right now. I didn't <laughs> like it. <laughs> Yes, I feel like we all have we have some feelings about this, but what perhaps we should get straight into those feelings. Uh so before we do, I will do the uh, traditional thing perhaps and read the blurb of the book. Order in court. On Discworld an almighty row is brewing. The Omnians want control of Roundworld. Its very existence makes a mockery of their religion. The wizards of Unseen University, however, are extremely reluctant to part with it. After all, they created it. Enter Roundworld librarian Marjorie Daw accidentally through L-Space. Perhaps, with her Jimmy Choo's and her inquiring and logical mind, she can help, especially as she's the sort of librarian who thinks that the Bible should be filed under science fiction and fantasy. Lord Vedinari presides over the tribunal. People on both sides are getting extremely angry. There are some very big questions being asked, and someone's got some explaining to do. The fourth in the Science of Discworld series, Judgment Day sees Terry Pratchett, Professor Ian Stewart and Dr. Jack Cohen create a mind-mangling mix of fiction, cutting-edge science and philosophy in an attempt to answer the really big questions, this time taking on God, the universe and, frankly, everything else. Proceed with caution. You may never look at your universe as 
in the same way again. Those are some big words. Oof. How do we feel about that blurb, for starters? Who's got some explaining to do, like, in this blurb? Like, who who is doing this explaining? Do you think they mean in this I know that the authors don't necessarily write it, but, like, what's that referring to? It's a good question, actually. Just says someone. Yeah, is it the authors? Is it someone within the text? Because I can't actually pinpoint, having read the book, mm. who they mean. Mm. Possibly Om. Yeah, that's the best one. I mean, he does just turn up spoiler alert and, and answer some questions so i feel like that's that can't be it but uh yeah that's an odd way to phrase it i agree it's interesting because mm. the blurb on my copy doesn't include marjorie door shelving the bible in fantasy and science fiction same hmm. mine's much shorter well mine's yeah. the first edition hardcover so they may well have changed it since then we got to say that yeah. she wears her sexy expensive high heels but we can't say her beliefs about books and she, I mean, look, I'll say this about Marjorie Daw, and we'll talk more about her as a character, but at least she shows up very early. You know, she shows up in, in Chapter 3. The trial of the century, as they are kind of setting it up, doesn't really start until more than halfway through the book. Like, in Chapter, where is it, 15 is when the trial starts out of 24. Like, it really all happens at the end of the book mm. in terms of the fiction. And the fiction chapters, it must be said, in this book, are super short. I think hardly any of them are more than five or six pages long. Though I would have read the hell out of this as a novel, like if we cut all of the the science um, <laughs> waffle in between out, I think it could have made a really good book mm. Yeah, as a fiction piece with the same themes. But yeah, I, I think the blurb is selling a plot point that isn't the driving plot point, but I'd also argue there isn't a driving plot point for most of this book. It's just stuff. Yeah. Full disclosure here, I did not get through the book, but the chapters about the science, like they're trying to explain things and then they get to a point where they go, but this is really too hard to explain unless you're a theoretical quantum physicist. And it's like, well, isn't that the type of dismissal that you're trying to criticise here? Like it's, they're, they're sort of missing the point almost repeatedly all the way through. Um, mm. It's a bit frustrating to read, actually. Yeah, I'd go with that. I mean, I before we get too much into the plot and, and the specific ideas that they bring up, uh, yeah, the plot, I think one of the things I struggled with reading this was figuring out who it was for, you know, who the target audience for this book is. I mean, presumably the, the people who buy it are people who like popular science books and or the Discworld, right? And if you are those two audiences, if you bought the first science of Discworld, that's exactly what you got. You got like a fun sort of weird little plot with the wizards and you got all this sort of popular science explanations about everything from cosmology to, you know, evolution to just, you know, all kinds of interesting explanations of weird stuff about our planet and how it works. Uh, and then in the second one, that kind of went off the rails a bit uh, in the similar way to this one, but maybe not as badly or, or maybe worse. I'm not sure. Or maybe we'll come back to that. And then the third one's kind of an interesting one, but both of those have a real, it felt like they had a real barrow to push. Like there was a message that the authors wanted to send um, but the fiction, whether or not you enjoyed the science parts, was kind of a bit meatier and interesting, you know, and there were some really lovely moments in the fiction in both of those books. Is this one, the story in the fiction is really slight. So if you came here for the Discworld stuff, I think you'd be pretty disappointed. Mm. Yeah, I'm trying to think who wouldn't be disappointed by this. As in, that's, that's a really mean thing to say, but as in... I had the same question while reading it, like, who is this for? Because in previous ones, I found the science difficult sometimes even coming from a science background I'd be like oh I'm being challenged by some of the science here I'm learning things and it's difficult 
in this one, sometimes it swung from, and again, this is from a place of privilege based on my education. Sometimes it was really basic stuff that I felt like I'd learned in middle school that they spent pages articulating. And then when they got to something mm. interesting, they're like, it's like Charlotte said, they're like, mm, that's too hard. Just, um, you know, just forget that. Anyway, here's something snotty that has nothing to do with anything. So I found it kind of difficult to engage with the science chapters because I didn't feel like I was being taught things. And I didn't know where it was going or why it was why particular science chapters were happening and they weren't as hooked to the plot as they normally were. Like it felt like the mm. connections to the story and the science chapters that came afterwards were a bit tenuous. Mm. Mm. I got the sense that the plot was science, good, religion, bad. Mm. Yeah. Religious people need to grow up and stop attributing everything to God. Yeah, and we had this similar criticism of the second one, which also comes across much the same way. It's it's weird because that's the one that's about Shakespeare, but it's also about the idea of stories and how important they are. And then it kind of devolves from that and sort of goes sideways into, and yeah, religions are stories, but they're bad stories. Don't get into those stories. And then the third one, they kind of didn't do much of that. They had some other problems there, but the third one was pretty good. I thought this one is, yeah, definitely back on that bandwagon. Yeah, this one is, yeah, people thought religiously because they were a bit slow and stupid, but you can train yourself out of thinking religiously and you can think like a scientist. Oh, yeah, it's gross. And I thought this book was going to end our decades-long friendship. No. Why, did you think you were going to come in here and I was going to be like, how great is this book, Avril? It's the best. I I didn't think that, but I thought, oh, no, I really hate this book. I hate this book so much. Oh, no. The tone is just, yeah. Mm. Mm. It's very disappointing. I mean, I think I said this about the second one in particular and and aspects of the third one, but I've read some of Ian and Jack's other work. Particularly, I've read their book about what aliens might be like, which is called What Does a Martian Look Like? It's good and interesting. And they actually, they rehash a lot of stuff from that book in one of the chapters of this one, which is something they do all the time. They're always reusing stuff that they've written before. I guess they learned from Terry Pratchett, who also does that. So that's okay. Yeah. But I've also read a couple of Ian's books about mathematics, like I had uh, his annotated version of Flatland, which he, again, they referenced that in this book. Uh, and he also wrote a sequel to Flatterland, uh, which I've also read, which had a really great explanation of how string theory works in it, which really helped me to understand it when I was struggling. And I really enjoyed that. And those books are devoid of any of this kind of smug, we know better than all those religious folks kind of attitude that you see seeping into the writing of people, like I think somebody tweeted at us and it wasn't really a question. So I'm going to jump in and say this now because I think this is our strategy for this book is like we've all been very upfront that we did not enjoy this. And I think we're going to unpack why and what happens in this book and where maybe we think they've gone wrong. But Boris Velosco on Twitter, I apologize if I'm pronouncing your surname wrong there, Boris, but you you mentioned to us that you got this when it came out and you were really disappointed because you think it embodies the kind of smug style of Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris. And I think it's kind of spot on. It was either the second or third book where they mentioned that, you know, scientists get into this thing where later in life they decide they have to write about religion and they go all weird. And then that's what these guys are doing. (laughs) Why? And then they've somehow roped Terry Pratchett into it, who previously when writing about religion was much more nuanced and considered. Mm. You know, he obviously had his own issues and opinions not generally really mean about the whole concept, <laughs> you know. Well, we're simultaneously reading A Slip of the Keyboard mm-hmm. as a palate cleanser and 
his essay, The God Moment, was just so different. And it worried me a wee bit because that's from 2008. And I thought, oh, no, did he radically change after his diagnosis or as he was approaching death? Because what he wrote in 2008 was an atheist who didn't think that religion was necessarily stupid and simple, Mm. which is definitely the attitude that was coming across in the science book. I wondered too, because I just looked up the publication date of Nation, which is the last podcast that I was on, and that was a 2008 publication as well. Um, And I know, I think he'd been diagnosed then, but it wasn't public yet. So he was getting a little bit of support, but not as much as would be needed later on. But it just seems so drastically different between Nation and that kind of respect for the contributions that faith makes to what makes a society to even just the bits of this book that I managed to get through is so different. I'm not sure how it can be reconciled. And it seems a little bit too convenient to just say, well, you know, he wasn't well, but maybe that's a part of it. Who knows? And I don't know how he would get to this position when it's so different and only five years later. Yeah. I felt like a lot of the bits that I found very unpalatable, though, were in the nonfiction sections. It kind of felt like Terry Pratchett wrote the fiction bits, Jack and Ian wrote the nonfiction bits, and they were entirely divorced in ways that wasn't as apparent in the earlier ones of this series. So I feel like the really toxic stuff didn't come across in the the fiction to me, which is why I would have preferred to see these ideas explored purely fictionally by Terry Pratchett. So I'm not sure if that's something as well, but Mm. to me, Mm. my problems were with the nonfiction sections, mostly. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Comparing this to Small Gods, which, as I say, is one of my favourite books ever, all time. Yeah, the fiction sections you can see as a development from Small Gods and you've got Mightily Oats turning up, which I just loved. That was absolutely brilliant. With his axe. Oh, yeah, we'll come back to him. (laughs) Yeah, fabulous. I love him. Um, and jokes about the sanitary army. And <laughs> then in the nonfiction, it's suddenly, yeah, no, we hate all religious people, not just the latter-day Omnians, but all Omnians. And it's just, well, that's not how Omnian religion has been presented, even in this book. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I look, I'm very hesitant, and I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I'm very hesitant to make any kind of assumptions about how Terry's illness would have affected his writing. I mean, we know some of the ways in which it did from a practical standpoint, but I don't know enough about whether he changed his mind about stuff. You know, I just, I just don't know. And I will say that, you know, the second one, which also has a lot of the same problems as this book, was published in 2002. So it predates both of the things that you were just talking about him writing in 2008. Mm-hmm. And we know that on the first couple of the books, at least, and probably the third one, he did work pretty closely with Ian and Jack, and he knows them very well. Like he's he'd known Jack Cohen for a long, long, long time, and uh, who introduced him to Ian Stewart, and then they all decided to write together in the late nineties. So that, I think they did work together a lot. But I agree in this one, the connections between the fiction and the nonfiction did feel pretty tenuous. Like stuff like the title of this chapter is a line of dialogue from the previous chapter, and then the theme is kind of related. But also, you've just got your own thing that you want to say here, and it's not tightly connected at all. Didn't feel cohesive to me. Mm. Like not terribly, like all over the place, but it was just—it didn't feel like people were, had been in the same room. Yeah. 
Well, look, I think we kind of agreed that the fiction part was the most fun, if not the only fun part of this book. So maybe we'll save that so we've got something to look forward to. Let's talk about that afterwards. So we'll start with the science chapters, which begin with chapter two. So if you're not familiar, and I, this would be a surprise to me, but if you've not listened to any of our episodes about any of the other science of Discworld books, the way that they're written is they alternate between a fictional chapter, which tells the story of what's happening in the Discworld with the wizards interacting with the Round World Project, which is a universe in a little glass sphere, which is basically our universe or a version thereof. And as they acknowledge explicitly in this book, Round World both means that whole universe in a bottle and the version of planet Earth that exists within that universe. Uh, so there's those fiction chapters. And then there's the non-fiction chapters, which are clearly written by Ian and Jack but in consultation with Terry Pratchett, at least in the earlier books. And uh, they also write an introduction, which sort of recaps the first three books. I don't think we really need to do that here. Um, You can go back and listen to our other episodes. They'll be linked in the episode notes if you're not familiar with them. But the first nonfiction chapter is called uh, Great Big Thinking, which is kind of linked to that first fiction chapter in that it establishes that Ponder Stibbons, uh, head of the high energy magic building and inadvisably applied magic is his department, wants to do another big project, which he eventually names the Challenger Project, and which we don't find out much about, except that he got funding for it six years ago. And now he's, you know, in the fiction of the book, he's just turned it on. And we don't really find out what it does, apart from it's going to reveal the secrets of the universe. It's kind of the, if the thing that ended up creating Round World was splitting the atom, this is the university's equivalent of the Large Hadron Collider, basically. But it look when it's described, it looks... In the Elder Scrolls V Skyrim a video game that came out like about 12 years ago now, so Terry Pratchett may well have played it. He was a big fan of the one that came out before it. There is a magical object called the Eye of Magnus, and the description of the Challenger Project thing made me think of that. It's this big glowing orb with all sigils on it and stuff. Anyway, so he does that, and then Chapter 2 is about great big things and great big thinking. I found it really strange that they called it like the Challenger Project because I, I read it and I was like, this is going to be a reference to space. and the Challenger explosions. That's like the most famous sort of thing associated with that name. And then it wasn't. So I was very confused by that choice because it felt like it had to be deliberate and then it went nowhere. Yeah. Why do you think they, do you think it's an accident or like originally it was going to go somewhere and they cut that off or because to me that's one of the, the big projects going to space. Like one of the things that you hemorrhage billions of dollars into is to expand out. And so they called his like big project Challenger and then nothing. Mm, shrugs all around. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, oh, good, they're going to talk about how science is funded, which they kind of did, but in a very cynical way. It wasn't mm. in a way, you know, I've been involved in science communication before where the goal of it is to try and help people to understand how science is funded so that they will vote to continue funding science. You know, you, we, we need blue sky projects as much as we need the little tiny projects, but this kind of got cynical about both. It said that the little projects don't matter. They just kind of keep science going and the big projects, you know, are really only funded so that politicians can feel good about themselves. And it didn't even do a great job of talking about and convincing us that we should continue to fund science. And that came from me, somebody who's worked in science. So I was a bit put off even just by that aspect of the chapter. But clearly it wasn't really meant to be a chapter about funding science, even though that was ostensibly the link. It was Mm. meant to be a chapter about two different ways of thinking 
which they say, you know, there's problems with dichotomies and with talking about two different ways of doing anything. We object to dichotomies. And then they presented this dichotomy as if it was a fait accompli. So should we talk about the dichotomy? (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is the big thing that they introduce in this first chapter. I did like uh, they they had a nice comment about, and and I'm not going to give them too much credit for nice comment. I'm so, look, listener, this is, there's just no getting around it. This is going to be one of our most negative episodes. If that's not your jam, I totally understand. Feel free to skip this one, but we just, this is how it is. It's how we feel about the book. We can't lie to you about that. But there are some nice bits. And one nice bit is they sort of talk about how, you know, when people debate about what kind of biscuits they're going to have in the kitchen for yeah. meetings, that takes hours. And when they're going to debate, you know, which building they're going to build or how they're going to do it, that doesn't take very long. And the reason is everybody understands biscuits, so everyone feels like they can have an opinion, but you need to consult an expert. You know, you need an architect and they'll tell you what to do when it comes to the building. I did like that too. And I, mm. I liked that, but I also felt that this is symptomatic of the problem with the book, which is that they don't consult any experts on the thing outside of their realm of knowledge. You know, mm. they assume that what they know of religion and what they can learn by reading about it in some books is sufficient. And they don't talk to any religious leaders or theologians or, you know, even people who've studied the philosophy and psychology of religion. Well, they have, they do talk about the psychology of religion. We'll come back to that. Um, but yeah, they, they don't talk to an expert. Even when it comes to talking about things like creation myths, uh, which is the fourth chapter, they rely on English translations and secondhand history. They don't go to the source and they repeatedly do this. And I'm like, why do I trust you about this at all? It's not the scientific um, method. <laughs> no. Yeah. And Avril, when you were reading it, you had a comment about, because um, you're used to reading academic texts, uh, as, as you know, I'm sure we all have some experience of that. Um, but you, you made a really good comment about the sort of lack of citing sources. There's no bloody footnotes. And then at the end there were more and I was going, oh, okay, there's footnotes when they're quoting individual scientists. But in any of the stuff about religion, there is not a single footnote. There is, they don't have a bibliography. And they seem to be picking and choosing, you know, let us find the most stupid example of Christianity in America, you know, mm. rather than let us talk to Archbishop Rowan Williams about his, you know, work on war and peace. I hope, I hope that nowadays it would be done differently. A lot of this just read to me as so white male upper middle class English. Mm-hmm. I was thinking all the way through because in Australia at the moment we're having a debate over whether there will be a First Nations voice to the Australian Parliament. So questions around the place of Indigenous peoples are front of mind. And I was thinking, goodness, guys, I hope you would not be as dismissive of the spirituality of Indigenous peoples as you are being dismissive of my faith because, you know, I'm another white Westerner and that's fine. Yeah, you've grown up in this culture. But the fact that you are taking something that is at least, you know, 6,000 years old that we know and that some of the greatest minds in Western history have thought about and you're not asking anybody who's made a study of that just drove me mad. And at the very beginning, they say, Scientific revolutions don't change the universe. They change how humans interpret it. And I'm going, yes, absolutely. And then they talk about interpretation in religion as a wriggle. It enables you to wriggle out of awkward positions. 
And they use as an example a quotation from Paul's first letter to Timothy, which is one of the ones that says women should not be able to speak and teach in church. Trust me, I'm really familiar with it. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, they were saying, well, obviously this is really clear. Somebody argued that this was really clear. But then someone else came along and said, no, if you interpret it, it's different. And it's just for them a funny joke about, oh, those religious people are trying to wriggle out of things. And I'm going, no. Actually, the way you interpret it is by learning the Koine Greek, reading it in the original, seeing that the vocabulary used in this letter is different from the vocabulary in other letters, seeing the history of religions and the way in which, having begun really radically, they then become more conservative. Like, the interpretation actually has substance and it involves linguistics and history and psychology and sociology. And it's not just something that we do to wriggle around it's something we've been doing for thousands of years and you're just dismissing it because you don't like religion. I had the same thought, Avril, when I was reading that section. This is a single phrasing that you were choosing to say can only have one interpretation when actually it is an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation of an interpretation of an ancient language that barely anyone can interpret anymore anyway. Like it's the way that it is framed is just I'm going to hold up this straw man, something they would object to in an argumentative sense, mm. um, and and kick it. But I also wondered, I had a little bit of a problem with the conflation between faith and religion as well. Mm. They tend to put it all in one big box. And my experiences of these things is such that somebody who is faithful or spiritual is not necessarily somebody who belongs to a religion and vice versa. And so I wondered how you felt about that conflation or if you noticed that conflation as well. I so noticed that conflation and I wondered where I felt so sorry for Jack's rabbi all the way through this. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I wondered whether Jack was sitting in synagogue thinking, all these silly people around me, they take all this literally. I alone am the only one who is here for social reasons. (laughs) Has he met Jewish people? I mean. (laughs) Yeah. I I did kind of want to ask that all the way through. There's a phenomenon now in religion called belonging and not believing, which is really common. There are a lot of people who participate in religions for cultural reasons, as, for example, you know, Jack was still attending the synagogue all the way through his life. There are a whole lot of people who believe in various things that are not part of any religion. There's a whole distinction between faith and belief as well. One of the things that they talk about later is they say faith is about not having doubts. And you go, well, actually, you know, have you looked at Paul Tillich in the 20th century when we said the opposite of faith is not doubt, it's certainty? Mm that faith without doubt is the sort of dreadful certainty that leads to the American pseudo-Christian nationalism, which, you know, you just don't want it. Faith without doubt is dangerous. And so I agree with them that certainty is really dangerous, but certainty is not faith. Oh, yeah. 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 I do think we want to get to their argument. So the, the two kinds of thinking that they introduce come from a science fiction author, from Gregory Benford, who's written a lot of very interesting things. But I mean, he's not a theologian or a philosopher, as far as I know. He's a science fiction author, smart guy. He's written some interesting stuff. 
don't know if I'd write a whole book about one of his ideas, but that's not my decision. Anyway. I mean, it um, is your decision. If well, you I guess it is. I won't, I won't write that book. It's an easy decision to decide not to write the book. That's it's a true. harder decision to decide to write the book. But there you go. Um, but the two kinds of thinking that he brings up, uh, the idea that there is human-centered thinking, which they later on in the book kind of relate to a sort of intuitive sense, which is thinking about everything from your own perspective. The way that they characterize it, they make it sound quite selfish, which is just like, okay, well, I have to, I, I live here and there's that thing there, so that must have grown so I can eat it, or these animals are very tasty, so, you know, clearly they're meant for me to eat. You know, that's the- it's Entitlement. Yeah, and it's very it's a very simplistic way of talking about that kind of thinking. But at least they said it like over and over again for an entire book. Like <laughs> <laughs> they do, they do go on about it. Like, I felt like I got it, guys. I got it. It's not that complicated. But the other kind of thinking they talk about is universe centered thinking, where we think about the universe as just existing and we're just in it. It's not really to do with us. And that is something they just keep coming back to. And they very definitely characterize without much subtlety that religious thinking or religious ideas are human-centered and scientific ideas and scientific thinking are universe-centered. From that, it feels like a book that they only put forward binaries. Like that's the big one that drives through the whole book, but they even have like, it felt like, and I always reference this book review that I can't remember what the book is or who wrote it or what publication it was in, but where it's this nonfiction book where there's just a whole lot of factual inaccuracies and the reviewer comes in and just systematically tears them down and it's done really well. Um, But my favorite tweet about it is like, this review just has a great drive-by within a murder where because like halfway through it, they just attack something else and also take that down. I, I find that really funny. Liz is thinking of Timothy Snyder's scathing review of Jonathan Gottschall's book, The Story Paradox. The book's about how stories make us human, how very the science of Discworld too, but also have a dark side and are supposedly tearing us apart. The review was published in the New York Times in December 2021 and titled... Is the human impulse to tell stories dangerous? Coincidentally, the drive-by murder within a murder in the review is of Steven Pinker, who'll come up again in this episode later. We'll share a link to the review and the glowing tweets about it in our episode notes, but alas, the review itself is behind a paywall. But I felt like this book was a whole lot of like <laughs> drive-by murders within like a bigger one. So like they attack, like they have arts versus science in there in a way that they said this whole thing. And I was like, oh, I've missed something. I have to go back and read this chapter to understand this like arts versus science dichotomy that they've introduced. And it's just not there. I read that chapter three times trying to find this like thing. And they've got like the mind versus matter thing. And they go over Mm. that, but they're like, oh yeah, it's the arts versus science again. I'm like, where have you articulated this? And why is this a thing that's fighting a thing within your book that's fighting other things? And it just goes on and on and on with these like, there's no shades of grey. There's no nuance that I can find, but there's they will just take a strong stance on something without putting in the work beforehand. Because I, I have no issue with a strong stance if you can stand behind it on like a pillar of evidence and it just felt like that wasn't there. I would be frustrated with them less if at the very least they bloody well footnoted a lot of their claims. Yeah. And they're very, I mean, they do footnote a few things. They do have footnotes for specific articles, like you were saying, but only for scientists. They don't footnote anything they say that's not about, here's this guy that we like, or here's here's this person's piece that we're going to reference briefly. You can go read the whole thing. You're like, okay, what about the other side of the argument? It says a lot about their attitude, right? Yeah. Mm. 
I mean, one thing that they do do is talk about the idea that all humans are human in that all humans have a tendency to think egocentrically. So we think about um, what we need in our immediate experience and our view of the world. You know, we, we do look to, at the world through certain lenses and science is an attempt to kind of um, engage people and I don't think they do this very well at all, but they do attempt to, to engage people in a dialogue so that we can compare perspectives and compare evidence. And they talk about this without ever mentioning epistemology. They talk about epistemology without ever really mentioning the word epistemology or what it is that they're actually talking about, which is how we know what we know. But they are sort of trying to get there and they still fail even at that. And it's kind of frustrating because in the way that they've written the book, they actually do a disservice to both science and religion. Mm. They do a bad job at both. Yeah, like I personally, I guess if I have to choose in their binary, veer towards the universe side of things where I think we happened randomly, like nothing is here for me, I'm a coincidence, and when I die, I'm gone. The soul part of me, which I think there's there's something that we can't explain. I can't just believe the firing of neurons in my brain is everything that I, my brain, I don't have more than one, just, just putting that out there, um, <laughs> is all that I am and that it just Isn't there a dessert right <laughs> <laughs> but there is a dessert brain, yes. But I, I veer more towards that side of things that it's random. I feel lucky to be here. Um, I wish there was an afterlife, and if there if there's something there, then great, I'll be thrilled. And even with that attitude, that seems to line up with what they're saying. I really struggled with this book because I found it so condescending, so snotty, and so because like, just because I believe that doesn't mean that it's that's what I have put together from my experience of the world. That doesn't mean that you mm. put that down in black and white and say everyone else is wrong. So the fact that they're saying things that I in theory agree with in a way that's so abrasive, I just found that fascinating. I found it frustrating because one of the best examples of universe-centered thinking is actually the biblical book of Job. Hmm. Um, not the prose story at either end, but the poetry in the middle, which is all Job moaning. Why has this happened to me? Oh, why? Why? If God must come so I can demand it. And God's basic answer is, you don't understand creation. Creation is bigger than humans. I have made an entire world that is not about you. The cosmos is bigger than human thinking. And it's actually this amazing discussion within the Bible about the wonders of creation that are beyond humanity, that humanity is never going to fully understand. I love it because it, it really puts human beings in their place as it is about more than us. I also love it because in my particular church, my small but wonderful Uniting Church, we used some of it when arguing for marriage equality because mm. the argument against same-sex marriage was very social Darwinism. It was very much, well, obviously people get married so they can reproduce and if your sex is not reproductive, then it is bad sex. Uh. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that we argued was, well, look at the book of Job. You know, God is specifically saying there, there are things that we don't really understand. And the example given is the ostrich. There are things that are beyond this nice, neat social Darwinism. Everything works together to make humans, enable humans to make more humans. And, you know, we got marriage equality through the church. So huge fan of the book of Job for many reasons, including the fact that it's one of the earliest examples of universe-centered thinking which Jack should know unless he was turning his ears off when sitting. 
<laughs> well, who knows? Who knows what he was doing? I mean, I, I came back to that thought too when they're talking about universe-centered thinking and they say it means being able to think in human thoughts. I'm like, well, surely that is a huge part of theology going, we believe there are things that are not humans and we try to understand what they want for us and how the world came to be. You're thinking non-humanly. I mean, if you're taking it seriously, you're doing a good job and you're not the latest evangelical megachurch in America or indeed Australia who's trying to make a bunch of money very cynically off the back of pseudo-believing in these ideas, then then you're taking it seriously. You're thinking about this stuff deeply. There are whole schools of theology that have existed for a couple of thousand years that are saying every single thing a human being can say God is, God is not. <laughs> like yeah. anything we say God is, God is also not because we are humans with limited human brains and so there's this constant awareness that we have no clue what we're talking about. Yeah. There's actually a quote in neuroscience too that says if our brains were so simple that we could understand them, we wouldn't be able to understand them. You know, this idea that we can't actually expect to, and I don't, to get to a complete understanding of anything, not least how I work. We can keep working towards it, mm. um, but we're never going to get, there i'm sure people are going to disagree with me in the comments um but it, it, it if the world was so simple that we could understand it we wouldn't we wouldn't be complex enough to understand it so you know it's it's a tautology right there um but it's yeah. the same tautology it is in both situations it's what theologians say about god if we could understand god god would not be god yeah and kind of the closest they come to acknowledging that kind of thinking is to say you know something trite about Oh, but you know, religious people just say God is, you can't understand God is ineffable. I mean, like, that's not really what that means unless you're using that argument in bad faith. And I know I've just said that, like, I sort of mostly veer towards universe based thinking and that humans are nothing, but I'm going to get extremely individual and be like Elizabeth based thinking here. <laughs> Reading this book, I felt personally attacked repeatedly throughout because, like, the drive bys they do, like, they have a random drive by of journalists. They have a random drive-by of Asian people, like, multiple times. Like, I was just mm -hmm. like, what are you doing here? And, I mean, I haven't sounded this negative on a podcast for a very long time, but I will just, just put it out here. Now, I enjoyed the fiction side of things, and I wish there was more of it. It's the nonfiction that I had issues with, and it just felt like they, were, they just took swings that didn't need to be taken. And my other big criticism is that my brain fought reading this book, like, every minute because it, I couldn't tell where it was going. And also... It felt like I was having the same simple concepts explained to me for pages that it didn't need. To, like they would take 500 words to explain something that needed at most two sentences and they kept doing it. So lots of criticisms. Mm. Yeah, I got to the end of the great big thinking chapter after they'd been explaining what an atom is, which is I was involved in the design of most recent revised curriculum. And look, that's something that we start in grade three and move through till about grade eight. Like that is something we cover with very young people very well. And then they get to the complex bit, which is actually um, the, the fundamental um, the standard model and the fundamental particles in the standard model. And then they go, oh, that's too hard. Don't worry about that. You have to be a quantum physicist to understand that. And it's sort of that, that dismissal that comes through. You've just struggled through 10 pages or I don't know how many I read it on a, on a e-device, but mm. you've just read through this many pages of things that you learned back in grade eight. 
and then you get to the interesting part that sort of tries to unify it all and they go oh but that's too hard for you to understand darling don't worry sit down it'll be fine just take it from us that this is how it is Mm. thanks very much journalists call this the god particle because it's easier to fit in headlines anyway this book where someone called it the god particle i'm like (laughs) what (laughs) yeah i mean i when i was reading it I had a weird reaction to it as well. Well, not weird, but I had quite a negative, strong negative reaction. But I think for even slightly different reasons than all of you, I could kind of follow sort of where they were going at times. But the thing was that every chapter, and this is very different to the original Science of Discworld book, where every chapter was like, oh, we've just done this weird thing where the wizards have found this out about the round world universe. Let's explain how that works. And you're like, great, this is a cool setup. I love it. And then in the subsequent books, it's always like, well, we've told this story. We have an agenda that we want to tell you something. We've got this big idea. So we're going to build to it, but we're just going to build it in little bits along the way. Uh, and in fact, in the, I think it's in the third one where they explicitly talk about using this kind of tactic from mathematical reasoning where they're going to start with the whole structure and then they're going to show you how the foundations were built rather than trying to build it up from the bottom. And I, I may have mangled that metaphor terribly. But as I was reading it, you know, you get through a chapter and I'm like, I think I vaguely understand the overall point you're trying to make here. And then I'd get to the end of the chapter and there'd be like two paragraphs that summed it up. And I'm like, why didn't you just say that? (laughs) Like, I didn't need all of these half explanations of really interesting bits of science that don't get, as you say, to the really interesting bit in order to understand this point that you're making. And you don't Mm. support it with the evidence, like you were saying, Avril, like you don't, you're not telling me where this is coming from. And particularly every time you talk about something that's not science, I just don't trust it from the way that you talk about it it was yeah it's very i don't know half baked but it did also i think where i was going with that is it felt like they had an agenda the whole time to me well i think the agenda is talking about thinking and the way that science works instead of actually talking about scientific theories and explanations for the world itself and Mm -hmm. so they're trying to do that but they're doing it in a way that they're holding up a straw man the entire time Mm -hmm. so that they can contrast it with something else. And it's sort of, this is not a thing that actually exists or if it exists, this is the way of thinking. It's a way of thinking for a very small number of people. Mm. And so why you have to compare it with this way of thinking of a very small number of people is unknown to me. You know, like we can talk about thinking and we can talk about the nature of science and we can talk about the processes of science and how they keep our ways of understanding the world, the models of the world that we have in check without needing to use it as a weapon to bash a way of thinking that actually isn't all of that, although unfortunately it may be gaining in popularity in some parts of the world. But, you know, it's actually not a contrast that we need to make. Hmm. Although, to their credit, that way of thinking is, I'm afraid, the way of thinking of our last Prime Minister. Mm. That's, yeah, that's where it yes. gets you get a way of thinking that is perhaps growing. And Yeah. Scott Morrison was leader of the Conservative Liberal Party and the 30th Prime Minister of Australia, serving from 2018 to 2022. While he was raised in the Presbyterian Church, most of which merged into the Uniting Church in the late 1970s, He is now famously a member of Horizon Church, a Pentecostal megachurch in Sydney. Horizon is an Assemblies of God church, part of a network which in 2018 distanced itself from the infamous Hillsong. The Assemblies of God believe in a literal Satan, speaking in tongues, and faith healing, and many of their churches also preach prosperity doctrine. 
Basically the idea that you will prosper in money, health and so on by pleasing God and that if you suffer, it's your fault for not pleasing him. Morrison, who as Minister for Immigration coined the hateful term stop the boats, has been criticised for how this faith may have influenced his policy and actions while in government. Uh, not just our Prime Minister, unfortunately, but, you know, past presidents. And, um, Maybe yeah. we can well, come back and do his people. book when it comes out next year. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> not unless Terry Pratchett's a co-author. <laughs> yeah. No way. Spin-off podcast. We're doing the Morrison book. Oh, yeah. No, actually, could we do one where we take it apart? I should not prejudge it, of course. It has not even been written yet, let alone published, but, yeah. Ben, Ben, do me a podcast where I can rip Scott Morrison's theology apart. <laughs> Listener, if you if you want to hear that as a bonus episode, if you're a subscriber, tell me because I'll I'll make it happen. We'll do it. We'll do it. Yeah, uh, I'll, but I'll it, read it's Scott not Morrison's be a memoir episode. if you That'll... really want me to, if I must. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'll I'll come on and I'll do it just so I can hear, <laughs> just so I can be there for the conversation. I'm going to suggest I've got better things to do with my time, but uh, yeah, it's sure. all on you. Yep, sorry. <laughs> okay, that's fine. Yeah. Avril, it sounds like it's just you and me. We'll do it our, on our own. Oh, you're going to be in on Liz? Okay, yeah. great. Okay, well, the three of us will do I, it. I read the quarterly essay dissecting him as a person. Like That's that's all right. But I respect <laughs> okay, Charlotte's great. boundaries. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Thank you. Um, but I will say what, what you just made me think of is that they do present a very, uh, a very idealistic and rosy view of how science works and it feels like in a book that is as you say largely about the kind of thinking that scientific thinking is they don't really talk a great deal about the philosophy of science or the development of that or our very modern understanding because you know they have that bit in and i think it is in that second chapter and we're not going to go into this much detail in every chapter of the book because you know i feel like we're covering a lot of ground here yeah but they and I'm just going to find the quote, they say, science is done by people for people, but it works very hard to circumvent natural human thought patterns, which are centered on us. But the universe does not work the way we want it to. It does its own thing. And we mostly go with the flow. Look, and that's, that's fine as far as that goes. But in a separate place, they talk about how certainly there are some people in science who will go off and be mavericks and do their own thing. But scientists as a whole is what keeps it in check because you can always be objective about other people's work. And I'm like, can you? Really? Is that how you think human brains and our society work? Because I would like to see what evidence you have of that, because that is absolutely not my understanding of our broader culture. Yeah, they didn't hound the germ man to death. Like that's That definitely didn't happen for, through science, so that's fine. Clearly, Ben, they've been very objective when it comes to their thinking about religion and religious people. So, you know, it must be possible for them to also be just as objective about other scientists' work. That was sarcasm. I'm not very good at it, so, you know. No, wow. I think we yeah. got it. I got it. I, I think okay, it came cool. across, but, but I'll keep your explanation in just to be clear Thanks. for everyone. Yeah. I won't edit that Thanks. out. Um, <laughs> yeah, look up Semmelweis if you haven't already because that's well, actually don't if you want to have a nice evening. But it was very sad and science as a whole was not very kind to him. No, and I know where you're going with that, Liz, but I actually I'm not sure that is a great refutation of their point because what they say mm. is if people are, well, well, maybe it is because they talk about how mavericks, you know, they do their own thing. And if we figure out that they're correct, we go, hooray. And if we figure out they're wrong, we go, you're an idiot, which is basically how they're characterizing it. Well, I don't think that's a good way to behave either. But then the idea is that they will be checked because everyone else will be very objective about what they're doing. 
Um, so actually, it is a good example because they weren't. They were like, I don't want to wash my hands. Yeah, that's so my, that's my point. Because like, <laughs> we're like, we're doctors, yeah. we're gentlemen. We Our hands are clean. We can go down to the morgue and touch corpses and then deliver babies. That's fine because we are nice, good, smart men. Um, and that's mm. them keeping science in check like because they're objective. Yeah. That's actually like the crowd mm. coming in being like, we're just going to emphasize each other's point of views because it's what's been happening for years beforehand. And overturning the status quo in anything is difficult, at least of all science. You know, it actually yeah. takes quite a lot to get dominant theory overturned or changed in any significant way. Like most science is that little inching along. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's a strength. I haven't read the previous three. I'm sorry. I have listened to the podcast. <clears throat> but don't read them. I um, mean, you, you do no, what The you first like one's to. really good, actually. The <laughs> first one's a lot of fun. The third one... Yeah, it's nice, but don't read the second one. Okay. You can read okay. the fiction of them. Like that's, I don't know, you, you do you. <laughs> I think I've read the first one and then I read the second one. I own the first two. I now own the fourth one as well, but I own the first two, read the first one, struggled with the second one, and I think that's why I never bought three or four mm. until now. Mm. Mm. I kept wondering when they were going to mention Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Mm. Yeah. They alluded to it in this chapter, I think, or is it the next non-fiction chapter, but they never reference it meaningfully. Big theme. In one of the earlier books, they do kind of talk about the development of the scientific method in a bit more of an historical way, but they don't really get deep into any of the subsequent philosophy more than, and this was the scientific method. Like It felt very, that's what I learned about the scientific method being when I was in like year six, you know? Which footnote, we would never call the scientific method anymore because that's a particularly white man western paradigm to, mm -hmm. to quote Avril earlier you know it's one way of thinking about science and I would argue that it's not even the only way in the western world to think about science and, and the processes and methods of science so there isn't one scientific method but again this book assumes that there is that there is only one way there is only one right way to do things and what does that sound like? <laughs> I, I feel that I have to say that some of my best friends are white Western men. <laughs> yes. Hello. I'm married to one. Yeah, my dad is one. We all have white Western men that we love and respect, but that doesn't mm. mean they're all good. <laughs> I, I think I think I want to get us to the fiction because I feel like we could keep talking about this forever. Um, but I and, and I think that'll lead us to other specific criticisms or observations about the nonfiction as well. But the other thing that I kept thinking is, you know, I think that there's something in, like the basic thing that you're saying is that there's different ways to think about the universe or, or about the world around us. And some of them are helpful and help us be better people and move us forward. And some of them get in the way of that. And I think they possibly misidentify what those kinds of thinking are. They definitely misidentify what is attached to those things because they constantly only attach this sort of us-centered thinking or human-centered thinking to religion, whereas in the modern world, that is by no means the biggest problem with that kind of thinking. Not even like, yes, there are churches that do that. And I mean, you know, Avril, as you've sort of said, when they call themselves Christian churches, that doesn't feel like a very accurate label if you know anything about Christ. But it's also like there's so many other sources, particularly, mm. you know, in the 21st century of this kind of destructive, self-centered, entitled, as you said, Charlotte, thinking that come from other belief systems that have nothing to do with the religion or indeed anything supernatural, you mm. know? I mean, like when you look at mass shootings and people who are doing them, 
they're not fundamentalist Christians or indeed any kind of fundamentalist religion. A lot of them are fundamentalist incels. They have a radical, crazy idea that they believe, but they don't believe it because it's supernatural, because it's a religion. They believe it because of a whole host of factors that this book never even gets into. Yeah, and it's not as though like science hasn't like true belief in science hasn't led to atrocities and moral mm. like failings throughout its own history as well, like through to now. I mean, if you look at like was the Henrietta Lacks, the blood cells that we used for all sorts of mm. great stuff, the origin of that is terrible. And a lot of scientific breakthroughs came from like literally stealing bodies. So like there's yeah, that's that's just ah. a big wide area, but even then, like ideology and science has led to bad things is what I'm trying to say. And this is a major criticism of this notion of human-centred versus universe-centred thinking. Universe-centred thinking would say, oh, but for the greater good, and isn't that a phrase we just love and see in all sorts of evil places, we must um, be allowed to take the cells of this poor black woman and learn from them and solve all sorts of other problems for them without giving her any credit or funding or support or allowing her to consent or anything like that. You know, this idea that values don't come into, or at least human values, because I would argue there are scientific values, but these human values do not come into science. That is not a good thing to think about science or to think about religion, like it, that religion can't talk about the sorts of things. You know, we that's where we need to be having and recognising human values across all of the domains and hopefully using them in whatever work we do and whoever we work for. So, yeah, it's a, a very concerning characterisation of science from that perspective as well. Because utilitarianism would lead to a lot of horrifying yeses to things that would advance scientific knowledge. Mm. Yeah, mm -hmm. greater good for the greater number. Who cares about the minority? Mm. Mm. Yeah. 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 No, I'm not convinced that's any different from the kind of thinking that they're criticising and mischaracterising. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all bound up. You know, you can't separate the two. Well, they kind of end that great big thinking chapter by saying these are the two kinds of thinking. And they explicitly go out of their way to say, and it's not so much that one is bad and one is good. They're both good in their own spheres, but it's when they get mixed up and they get in each other's way or they clash in the wrong domains, that's when it causes a problem. But by the end of the book, they seem to not really be saying that anymore. And it becomes much more simple, you know, science yeah. versus religion. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, listener, uh, Charlotte is miming hitting something with a big <laughs> stick and it does feel like that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but I did think that maybe this was time for us to switch over to talking about the fiction mm. chapters as well. Mm. And that'll bring, I'm sure that'll bring up more stuff from the nonfiction for us. We've, we've talked about the start of the fiction where Pontus Dibbins hatches his Large Hadron Collider style challenger project, which as we've mentioned, gets named that. And then we never find out what they're actually using it to do apart from some vague jokes about, you know, exploring the further reaches of their universe. Which is why I thought it was going to be space. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, but when they turn it on, Nothing much happens except that it accidentally brings from the round world universe one Miss Marjorie Daw, librarian from the UK. Before we get into the charming MD, which I feel like is not a coincidence, I'd just like to talk about the beginning where it's like if you press this button, it might end the universe because oh, yes. at the time that we we're recording this, Oppenheimer has recently come out. And so that felt like kind of a beautiful piece of timing of that. And I was like, oh, it's going to be more about that. And they're like, nah, we're going to talk about the Manhattan Project a little bit and then, then goodbye to that whole thread. 
Yes. I mean, and that was, they do mention the whole thing. Like there was that lawsuit that happened in Hawaii where someone was trying to get the Large Hadron Collider shut down because they're like, it's going to open up black holes and destroy the whole world. I wrote a sketch about that that we never ended up performing. That was several years before this book was written, but it never, <laughs> yeah, it didn't, didn't happen. Or it but, did in an alternate universe. <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Yes. And the picture, and they do repeat. I mean, look again, this is the thing. There's a lot of stuff in this book that feels like a rehash of things from the previous books, including the whole gag where the patrician is pressing the button and they've already turned it on. Mm. Like that's, they do that in the very first one when they f- do the initial splitting the Thorm experiment. I thought I was reading the wrong book. I was like, have I picked up the wrong one? Cause I was like, this is so familiar. And I'm like, have they printed the first one in the pages of the fourth one? But then it went somewhere else. I was like, okay. No. But I do like that the patrician was there. It's nice to have him involved in the, in the book and see a lot of fun, familiar faces showing up and a new face in Miss Marjorie Daw, round world librarian. Initially, I quite liked her. What were your first impressions of Marjorie Daw? I liked her until she fainted. And then I was like, that seems unnecessary. But then I remembered that this is a book written by three men, <laughs> one of whom did grow to write women much better towards the end of his career. But I was a bit like, yeah, I don't think that that is necessary. Maybe it's just me. Yeah, I think that bit would have been better if she spewed. Like, because it's like, <laughs> yeah. if she's coming through here and she's sick from traveling across these different places. Yeah, I was expecting that scene to be a spew and it was a faint. And I was like, mm. I mean, bless them, they make it short and they do lampshade it. But I agree, it was unnecessary. What about her personality? I mean, we don't get to learn too much about her in that first chapter where she shows up, except that she's always ready to, what's the great phrase where she says, oh, always be ready to punch first, avoiding any damage to books and ask questions later or something. <laughs> it's when she's using her librarian training, or I think is how it's explained. She punches one of the wizards. But she she's kind of presented as someone, apart from the fainting, who adapts to this weird situation very quickly and kind of takes it in her stride and is very, I mean, well, as the blurb says, very rational. Well, I did like that we meet her because, like, the, the, our first introduction to her is men running away screaming. And I was kind of like, that's that's mm. a bold opening. She seemed like she was going to be a cool character. Overall, I wish we had spent more time with her because I don't think I got a good mm. sense of her below the superficial details. Mm. Yes. And there's mm. kind of these deep bits that we get where we just get a glimpse and, and they don't feel great. You know, when we when we sort of get these little glimpses about her her backstory and particularly the one passage that talks about what happened with her dad who was a, a reverend, um, it just it felt very shallow because we got such a lot of information in such a short period of time without really getting to the heart of it when we find that later on. But initially, yeah, I quite liked her. But then some of her attitudes, I'm like, this seems unnecessary. When she first appears, she gets a really cool footnote about her name. Oh, yeah. She had rather liked the name until she went to school. The other kids teased her until one day she took umbrage and there was an up and downer, after which they showed some respect. And I go, yes, cool. That is often how it works amongst kids, yes. Mm. It was interesting because I, I was like, oh, yeah, that nursery rhyme. And I, I could remember the first two lines of it, but I had to look it up because I, uh, like you, Charlotte, I, I work with kids a lot, but I haven't heard that nursery rhyme for a long time. It's pretty old fashioned now. And I don't think it was ever that popular here. I'd never heard of it. Oh, really? Yeah. I was just like, what, what is the joke? I do not understand. <laughs> I mean, I'm like Ben. I can only really remember the first couple of lines, but it, and I'm going to sing terribly. But see, saw Marjorie Daw, Johnny shall have a new master. Can't remember anything after that. Uh, well, there's really only one more line. That's pretty much it. Well, there's two more lines, which is... Uh, Go on, jo- then. Yeah, and they are. 
Johnny shall earn but a penny a day because he can't work any faster. And there's a little game that you play where you kind of like on a seesaw or you're doing something where people are pushing back and forth from memory. And this is like the version that I played and, you know, kids have their own culture and folk games change all the time. But uh, I think then you kind of, there was a moment where you sort of picked someone and everyone had to run away or something like that. It was, it was, it was that kind of interaction. It doesn't reflect well on her parents, though, that they have the surname Daw and they called their child Marjorie. Like, that's just, mm. you know, they depict her dad as quite a sympathetic character in most ways. And that seems, that seems mean. Like, don't do that. Don't Maybe do that it was an old family name. Mm. Yeah, it could be. Maybe they could didn't be. know. Like, I wouldn't have known if I hadn't read this book and then had it beautifully sung to me. By multiple people. <laughs> well, that's, that's not over. We're not in this podcast, but yes. <laughs> we, did, we did our best. Um, but, yeah, so she shows up and then faints, so they put her to bed, and then Rid Kelly's like, all right, we've got to sort this out. There's clearly some problem which they describe as seepage between worlds, and I, I don't often have a problem with words, uh, I'm, and I don't really have a problem with this one, but I'm edging towards having an issue with the word seepage. It's pretty gross, <laughs> but it's a very sci-fi. It makes you think. Like a drain dripping. Oh, yeah. Gross stuff. Just dribbles you some Marjorie. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. yeah. But they do set up here the idea that maybe Marjorie's not the only thing that's seeped between worlds, which is a concept we'll come back to. And then uh, as the fiction continues, she wakes up and, like, some of the chapters are so short, these fiction chapters. Like, the next one, which is called Magic Isn't Real, this is chapter five, is, like, literally, like, four or five pages long. And it's just Ridcully going, yeah, this is what happened to you. And now you're in another world and her thinking about it. I mean, and there's some, there's some fun quotes in there like this. I think the, the most fun I have with the character of Marjorie Dor is the bits where he's describing the way she thinks, but it's very stereotypical. Like I know quite a lot of librarians and I don't, they don't actually think like this, <laughs> but she's described as being so analytical. Like she knows the Dewey Decimal System off by heart which, you know, a lot of librarians do because it's practical, but that doesn't mean they go around categorizing everything all the time, but that's kind of how she's presented. And it is kind of fun, I thought. It was a fun aspect to her personality. She's a caricature. Yes, she is a caricature of a librarian, of a modern librarian. But I, did anyone else when they were reading this feel like it was like, oh, they're making a big love story between her and the Arch-Chancellor? Like it felt like they were amping into something longer term to me. Because he was so fascinated by her. I think they definitely, look, I think it was intentional that there was meant to be a bit of flirtatious stuff going on between them, but she shuts it down when she's got that, she's got that great line um, where she says, you know, I, I have quite a few gentleman friends and some not so gentle. I'm like, what do you mean by that? <laughs> like, it sounds saucy. But is it? She I'm has a sure. few like saucy Miss Fishery moments in there. I was like, oh, you've got some stories. Is it Miss Fishery or is it Adorabelle Deerhearty? Mm. Yeah, there's a bit of that in there. Yeah. And the heels as well. Mm. Yeah. So she kind of does shut that down, but I think it's definitely there. I mean, and because she also thinks of him as there's that great description of him as a elderly but handsome man who called himself an arch-chancellor, a title Marjorie had never heard of before. She had to admit, though, that he was pretty arch, which, which is a great description of Mustrum Ridkelly. I enjoyed that. She also straight up says about her Jimmy shoes to someone in there. I've forgotten which character. I think it's the person who's bringing her breakfast or who like she first meets, and they just like accept that as though they know what that is. So presumably they have Jimmy Choo shoes on Discworld. Well, I don't think we could have a doorbell dear heart unless there were Jimmy shoes on the Discworld. But- mm. 
I just assume that they have some Discworld version of it, like a like a twist on it, like you know, like um how like Smith and Wesson has like their version of like strong in the arm. I thought it'd be like that. Yeah, mm. mm. Do you think it be, would it be dwarfs who make um really high heeled shoes on the Discworld? I would love that. I think they <laughs> definitely make a doorbells. Um, yes, because <laughs> they they have to be sharpened. Yeah. I feel like vampires is where I'm coming from. I feel like vampires would be the ones who make really good high heel shoes. Mm. Yeah, okay. Okay, I'll pay mm. that. Well, look, there's not much happens to that chapter anyway, so we can, Sorry, but I keep <laughs> bringing in stuff. <laughs> okay. No, it's fine. It's fine. But th- that sort of ends with him sort of explaining what's going on, and she's like, well, look, I know about science fiction, but wizards? I mean, magic isn't real, is it? And that leads into a nonfiction chapter called Reality Isn't Magic, where they talk about how difficult it is to figure out how things work, basically, like what causes things, and that we have technology that's kind of like magic. Like, they, again, like there's some good points in there, but I don't know. Like, they talk about magic spells, for example, and they've got this sort of list of what the magic spells are. And this is actually from an earlier chapter, but it's our own form of magic. There's spells like make dugout canoe, switch on the light, and log into Twitter. And I'm like, I don't think any of those are spells. Like, those are just things that you do. <laughs> There are other things that seem much more magical. I mean, maybe turning on the light because, you know, you flick a switch and light comes out of somewhere else. That feels like it could be a spell. But logging into Twitter, like... Well, of those three things, I could explain turning on the light most easily and it would probably be the most accessible scientific explanation. But I think their point there is that these things are not something you have to understand to be able to do. Mm, Okay. Well, make dog out canoe. I mean, I feel like you kind of do need to... Don't you? No, but that I would. Well, I think that's their point. As in, there's expertise to designing these things, but to actually use them, everyday people can use them, and it might seem like magic. Because how did you dig out this canoe? I don't know. How did you make the light come on? I don't know. How did you log into Twitter? And if you had to explain those things, then there wouldn't be magic anymore. Yes, um, no, but no. also I don't think scientists are any better at explaining them than anybody else's. So no. It also felt a bit to me like there was a conflation between magic and the supernatural because it felt like they were saying that sometimes what you consider magic is you slap the word magic on something you don't understand, but there is actually a known reason for, but also that magic is something that can never be explained because it's something that will never fit under the realm of science. It's something that is entirely separate, but it felt like they're at times saying they're the same thing, like Different mm. magic being, oh, we don't understand it, but it happens anyway. But some people understand, or one day with enough scientific like testing, we will know what that is. But also, there's a degree of stuff that no amount of science will ever like prove is real. But it didn't feel like that distinction was made clearly, and I feel like I haven't made that distinction clear in my complaint. But you know, you know, I wonder. I wonder if yeah. Well, I wonder it too. Like a, a uh, I mean, there's this notion. And I'm not sure how to feel about it, but there's a notion of non-overlapping magisteria, which is this idea that mm-hmm. um, science doesn't deal with the supernatural. The supernatural may or may not be real, but it's because it's not part of the natural and physical world, science has nothing to do with it. It doesn't investigate it, it doesn't explore it. If we could explore it and investigate it, it would no longer be supernatural, it would be natural. So it's sort of like this tautological defence of science that says if it's something that cannot be explained using natural and physical explanation, then it's nothing that we can deal with as scientists. So, you know, it becomes not science instead of science. So, yeah, 
Mm. You know, I don't know that I've explained that very well, but yeah, the, the, oh, it, it links with mm. that idea. Good, good, good. Cool. Yeah, ghosts and mm-hmm. angels don't necessarily obey the laws of physics, so science can't tell you anything about how they work. But uh, if they or, did, exactly. then they'd be like, "Yep, we've explained it." Yeah. Then, but yeah. if you, you know, an angel showed up and they did, or you could identify how they do what they do, then you'd give them a species name and go, "Now they're part of biology or whatever." Yeah. They operate. Uh, they have a niche in the ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The theological you- equivalent is called the God of the Gaps, um, and it's a, a theological dead end where you know, through centuries, people went, "Oh well, we can't explain that, so it must be God," and then it gets explained, and you go, "Oops." So yeah, the God <laughs> of the Gaps does not have you know is not really around anymore. Doesn't have a good sound basis on which to exist no yeah basing your argument on things that could easily not exist tomorrow like it's not a good idea and indeed the first couple of science discworld books so heavily wanted to write about everything that was cutting edge and brand new in science that when they wrote the second one they revised the first one they had to change a bunch of stuff in it because it was all wrong now (laughs) because Mm. they'd gone oh this new research means that blah 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 and you're like no it doesn't actually that went nowhere Nobody believed that for more than about five minutes, but you read an exciting article about it and put it in your book, which doesn't make me feel good about the level of research that you're doing. I think one of the problems is I don't know, and I haven't been able to find out a great deal about what their methodology for writing the science bits was. There's some writing online about how they collaborated with Terry Pratchett, uh, which we've linked to in previous show notes, and I'll look that article up again for this episode. But you know, what research they did or when or who wrote what bits of the science chapters and how they coordinated that, no idea. I did like the quasi-pagan god of the English (laughs) and the fact that Marjorie's father used to sing All Things Bright and Beautiful to his car, his Morris Minor, to get it going. That was delightful. I really liked her dad. He sounded like the kind of guy I would get along with. Yep. And that is absolute observation of the English vicar, you know. <laughs> it's the opposite of Basil Fawlty. Well, it's, very, it's a very much a thing in English hymns too, isn't it? Is they're all about the, you know, this green and pleasant land and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Taking it from Psalms, like, you know, all the way back, it's, as I said, God didn't just make humans. God made this amazing creation. Wow, isn't it wonderful? Oh, look, the trees are beautiful. Yeah. Well, they have that discussion and then we have the non-fiction chapter about how reality isn't magical. But then Marjorie's like, I'd like to see this round world that you've told me about. And look, I, I got to admire it. I don't know if I was in the same circumstance. Oh, no, maybe I would. I don't know. I was thinking about it and I was like, if this happened to me, and maybe this is a question I'll put to all of you because I think this is an interesting question. If you got magically transported to the disc world and they explained to you that your universe, where your planet Earth is, is in this glass globe that we keep on a shelf in Rinswin's office. Uh, would you want to see it? Would that yeah. be too weird? Yes. No, because no, I want to see it. Yeah, show it to me immediately. Yeah, because otherwise you're just making it up. <laughs> you want to see some evidence. Well, but even then, like, <laughs> you know, you don't necessarily trust the evidence of your own eyes. Hmm. That's true. That's true. But I definitely think I would not faint. I think I might feel a tiny bit of queasiness you know, in this alternate reality. But again, it's because of the travel costs, mm. like Liz was saying. I, know I mean, I, 
Yeah, but I, I agree, though, with Liz's idea that it would have been better if she threw up because th- let's not forget she's gone from 21st century London, as far as we can tell, it is contemporary with when it was published, um, to Ankh-Morpork, which even at the stage this was written, which is getting very near the end of the series, so it's probably around snuff raising steam time, uh, which has developed quite a lot, but it still is and smells like Ankh-Morpork. <laughs> That's a lot to take in when you suddenly arrive. I am really surprised that she just takes the dominance of men so casually. Mm, yeah. She just says, oh, it's a bit like Balliol College. And it's, you know, universities have been allowing women to be part of them for about a century now. And here she is suddenly in a place where the only woman is the servant who brings her breakfast. I would have thought she would ask more questions about that. Yeah. Assuming that, like, if, to take your question, Ben, to say if we were transported there, assuming that it's like a Discord-like place, but not like literally Discord where I'd be like, oh, we read this book recently and now I'm having a dream. Um, it's some other place that I don't recognize that I've been taken to that has this. I would probably still assume it's a dream, like a lucid dream, because it would take me a while to accept that, yeah, this is reality. This is actually happening. I'd be like, no, no, this is all happening in my brain. So there's actually no consequence to my actions. Whether or not that was the situation, I'd still want to see it because... I, I can't see a reason not to. It wouldn't like mess with my brain or anything. But I agree with Avril in that I wouldn't question the fact that men are dominant in this scenario because I'd be like, oh, my brain has conjured up this terrible society. But I don't think I would accept it in the way that she did because I would think that it's a dream with no actual consequences and so you challenge things. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm. I think I would think I had time-travelled rather than universe-travelled. Mm. Yeah, I would think, wow, medieval Europe, not exactly as I pictured it, but... Mm. A lot, lot more wizards. <laughs> Depends how steampunk it looks. Like, because mm. steampunk is not reflective of any real time. Well, maybe Victorian, but not, not really. But, you know, time travel, some reason, seems more plausible than universe travel. Mm. Yeah, well, it's not I mean, a sentence I expected to say because you wouldn't think that because it's like time and universe travel with this because it mm. does look like the past, but you would be like, why yeah. is it aligned? Yeah, and they never really explain why. I mean, not that they really need to, but they they never explain why she's there from her time because you know they can access round world at any point in its history, which they've done in all the previous books. But now it seems like there's a now that matches the now in Ankh-Morpork and the now is the time the book is being published in the real world. But I, the whole thing where she just accepts them all is like, oh, you're all just a bunch of old professors and that's what it's like here. It does feel, yeah, like she's got this weirdly modern and old-fashioned view in, and this is expressed through the way that she thinks and the things that she says. Like she comes a little bit across like thoroughly modern Millie, you know, like she's very progressive, but she's progressive for a person in the 1950s. Like it, there's that kind of feel about her mm. yeah she's plucky yes yes that is the verb a very 50s word yeah sorry that adjective <laughs> it's not a verb <laughs> um, <laughs> that is the adjective but she probably is also like plucky as a verb because she probably prepares her own chooks mm, true um <laughs> she, or at least would have no trouble doing so if she had to I'm, she plays instruments that, like, you, you know, she plays the koto. There we go. That's less, less, less feathers. Bring this back on, <laughs> back on track. Because I feel like we get through this, the rest of this sort of pre-trial part of the fiction very quickly. Okay. Because they go and see Rinswind, and Rinswind gives them 
the globe of round world so that she can have a look and Rid Kelly spills mayonnaise on it. It's gross. But also Rincewind is the first one to mention, oh, yeah, and the Omnians have been asking about it again. Not the nice Omnians, like the gross ones is kind of how he puts it. And that's where the joke about the um, the sanitary army comes in, which was funny. I did enjoy that. Because it's in the fiction bit. Uh, but then he gets shown it and that's fine. And then someone knocks at the door and it's Ponda Stimmons comes in. This, by the way, is happening across three different chapters, this very short bit of fiction. Uh, but Ponda Stevens comes in and says, okay, look, the Church of the Latter-day Omnians, which is what they call this sort of very zealous, conservative, militant branch of the Church of Om, have not just asked for the round world, but they're now making a legal challenge and saying, look, it makes no sense, but they're effectively saying you're infringing our intellectual property by having an actual round world because we believe the world is round. That's our religious belief. You can't have an actual round world in your office, uh, which is a very weird <laughs> weird argument in the first place. I'm not quite sure why the patrician entertains it for more than about five seconds. But anyway, they're very serious about it. And this really pisses off Rid Cully. He's not happy about it at all. He complains about them. But at the same time, Ponda's like, oh, but actually we figured out the problem and now we can send Marjorie back home. And she's like, well, I don't want to go home. I'm actually quite invested in finding out more about what's going to happen to my entire universe <laughs> because apparently it's up for grabs in a legal dispute. And at that point I was like, yes, I would stay for that as well. <laughs> I would want to know. That was quite nice. Then they, well, they almost get to the hearing at that point. But in the meantime, one of the other things that happens is Ridcully has asked Rincewind to go on a tour of the modern round world to check it out and see what the state of affairs is because they haven't really visited this part of human history. They've been in the past, they've been in the future when the humans have left the planet, but they've never really seen contemporary Earth from around the time that the books were being published. So they send him in and they also get the Dean back because by this time in the other fiction, he's left Unseen University and become Arch-Chancellor at another university, which is a whole thing we'll cover when we get to Unseen Academicals, the book. But they get him back. So he's like, well, you stuck your finger in the firmament. You're the one who created this whole place. You go with um, Rincewind and check it out. And there's that whole chapter where they go to modern Earth and have a look around, which is really weird. And I've got a question for you about this because I, I kind of enjoyed this chapter. Like, it was very stupid. It didn't really go anywhere. It was just a bit of fun. but. Rincewind accidentally wins a race, which it seems is like a marathon or something, right? And they congratulate him on his costume. And then someone in an orangutan costume comes up to him and says, you've raised so much money for the orangutan society. Are they suggesting that in the round world, in the bottle universe, Terry Pratchett exists and has written the Discworld books and people think that Rincewind is in costume as Rincewind and is being approached by someone in costume as the librarian. Is that what's going on? I really, really hope so. And if so, why has Marjorie Dore, modern librarian, never read any Discworld books? <laughs> yep. Which is the one flaw in this, this hypothesis is that she should know about the Discworld, even if she's never read any of them. He's a massively popular author. You can't be a librarian in the UK in the year 2013 and not know who Terry Pratchett is. That would be ridiculous. Yep. Look, this is a little bit of the problem with being an academic, right, or a scientist. Like if, if the only friends you have are people with your worldview, then you might think that it's much more common 
Ben, and I know he's very popular and he's sold a lot of books, but I would still say that 90 to 95% of my friends have never gotten past one Terry Pratchett book, which is because they started with The Light Fantastic, which is the wrong book to start with, and that's a whole other podcast. It but is. The, yeah, but maybe even as a librarian, especially if she's a librarian in a university and they tend to deal more with research texts, and mm. journal subscriptions. I don't know what kind of library she comes from. It's implied it's, it's a council, like a local council library. Mm. Well, then she should know about Terry Pratchett. But then later, well, this is what I thought, but then later on she does have that footnote where she's got sort of a thing going with a guy and but but then it says, before you get all excited about librarian porn, actually what we're talking about is this other kind of academic method of ordering books, which bliss. is a very funny footnote. But, it, yeah, bliss. But it's... um. But but that which suggests she works in some other kind of library. But at the moment, she's in a yeah council library. What if it's I, I, that didn't occur to me, and I really want that to be the case. Um, but what if it's the scenario where in her world the books exist, but there's slightly different details, like everyone has a different name, that kind of thing, and maybe mm. and we don't know for sure that she thinks that the place she's in when she's in Discworld is real, or she could think that mm. she's in her brain. And that's why mm. she's not like, I must leave immediately. This is like dangerous or anything like that. And why she's able to do things so imp- and challenge like the patrician and things, which if you genuinely believed in the world, you might not, even if you did have a rage spiral about what's being said. So she might not fully believe it's real. And she could have drawn upon her knowledge of Discworld in our world to create this is what she believes. Mm. Don't know. Rincewind takes the Dean to Australia. Just because he likes Australia. That was nice. delightful, yes. Yeah. Cool. Does he make the connection, because this is now past the bit I got to read to, does he make the connection between Australia and Forex? He does not mention it, but he says mm. he likes the place and it might be because it reminds him of Forex, which he does seem to, you know, have liked when he was there, despite mm. his misadventures. Interesting. So, yeah, not explicitly. He did invent Vegemite. Okay. Yeah. yeah but yeah. the other thing is... The dean, having a go at religion again, says it would take a fairly brave person to stand up and say that no matter what is in their particular holy book, there are certainly some parts that need re-evaluation. And that drove me mad because that's literally my job. Yeah, is that not something that happens literally all the time? (laughs) Literally every Sunday I get up and say, you know, doesn't matter what's in, like I've just been doing a series on the story of the Exodus in which we're told that God kills the firstborn of all the Egyptians to rescue the people of Israel and, uh, you know, and then Moses parts the Red Sea, brings the Red Sea back, all the Egyptians are killed. Like I have literally just done a series of no matter what's in your particular holy book, there are certainly some parts that need re-evaluation. <laughs> yes. Yes, I would. that, that is one. <laughs> I think that's part of that mischaracterization of religion, though. Like that's just a that's the convenient understanding of religion that that the authors have taken or, or accepted or are perpetuating. Surely nobody believes that religious people believe that their god wipes out random other people. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's that thing where yeah, the straw man concept of what a religious person thinks, which is constantly in this book referred to as you know they believe in their you know, they don't use this phrase, but they're basically taking that their imaginary friend with a beard in the sky kind of tactic, you know, who who makes everything happen and uh, means that I'm right and I can do whatever I want. And he's like, I've never met 
a person like that, like an actual living person who thinks like that, no matter how, you know, and I've, and I've, I've had some friends who've gone pretty far down the rabbit hole in some fairly weird places of Christianity. Like I had a friend once who, who just randomly said, yeah, uh, we're, we're going to some faith healing where we're going to speak in tongues and get our cancer cured. And I'm like, what? And that was really weird. Cause I'm like, I don't know. I've never met another Christian in my life who, who believes that is a real thing. Well, you seem to, and that was weird, but they still didn't believe that that meant they could do whatever they wanted or that they were always right. You know? Yeah. It's not that simple. <laughs> it is maddening in this book, the way that there's no nuance in the way that they talk about it. And the Dean is a big part of that in the fiction. He's the one who's like, yeah, God's now. Nah, I never liked the Dean. <laughs> yeah. No, I never liked him either. <laughs> but uh, well, that's not true. I liked him before he went to another university. Really? Um, I mean, I liked him as a character. I didn't like him as a, I wouldn't like to have lunch with him, <laughs> but, but you know, he's an agitator. He's the one, you know, cause he's the most childlike one. He's the one who's always the most before this. He's always the one who's the most suggestible. You know, he's the one who puts on the leather jacket. This is born to ruin when music with rocks in takes off. And he's the one who gets right into the clicks and wants to eat all the popcorn the most. And he's the one who's you know running around making the alien marine noises when they're fighting the shopping carts. You know, he's fun. He's like, Oh, you're the idiot one who gets too excited about everything. And then, you know, he goes through quite a change when you get to unseen academicals, which we will get to. We won't spoil that too much. I would have. Uh, and here he's just a, <laughs> he's just an unsufferable prat really <laughs> for the most part. Didn't like him at all. Now that you've said that, I'm going, okay, well, of course, that's what he thinks. He's an unsufferable Pratt. So thank you, Ben. Yeah, which might give Terry Pratchett a bit of an out <laughs> for the parts that he wrote. <laughs> well, mostly. We'll come back to that, I think. The other thing that does happen, I, I sort of skipped over, is that just before Rinswind and, and uh, the dean go to the ex-dean, I should say, he's not a dean anymore. He's an arch-chancellor of his own university. But just before they go to Round World, Marjorie gets taken on a tour of the Unseen University Library and all its wonders in L-Space by the librarian. Who she's met before. Yeah, she reveals that, oh, yeah, on Round World we have all these stories that there's this orangutan who turns up, <laughs> and I've met him twice. <laughs> and she says what the first time was, and then she goes to say what the second time is and gets cut off, and then we never hear that story. And I was like, ah. That's a real vibe of the book, though, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe they thought they'd bring her back. I don't know. But again, if that sort of alludes to the idea that the Discworld and Terry Pratchett do exist on Roundworld and that she's actually engaged with them. Well, it implies that what's previously been said about L-Space is true, which is that it links all libraries throughout all possible universes and space and time. And we know that in a previous book, the librarian does use L-Space to cheekily go and rescue all of the books from the burning of the Library of Alexandria, which he refers to here. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know if that's evidence. But it is weird that if Terry Pratchett exists in Round World and the librarian is a myth among librarians that no one's put two and two together. But also, if Terry Pratchett exists in the L space. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's, hmm, do things exist in L space or does L space just connect all of the places where things exist? But don't, isn't L space, like, don't all books that can exist and have existed exist in L space? Isn't that's in, mm. is it Guards Guards when the secretary once goes and steals the book? From the library, then there's a whole explanation that all books that I, I'm pretty yes. anyway. Well, that's where L space is introduced, is in guards, guards. But yes, I, I think you're right about that. Yeah. Oh man, this is. But it also sounds like she works in a library like the library that Lurio works in the Garthnick Sabriel series. 
where there's just layers upon to, layers of epic libraries. I've got to read the rest of those. I read the first one and it was really good. So oh, you'd like Lyriel. It's about a librarian. I love a good librarian story. Speaking of which, let's get back to this because like, we're nearly at the crux. The thing that the blurb says the whole book is about, which starts in chapter 14. <laughs> 15, sorry, 15. They finally have this legal hearing. You know, there's no separate court of law. There's The patrician is going to preside. There are lawyers. I guess they just do mostly contract law if there's no court cases. But the patrician presides over this hearing. And the thing that first happens is the speaker from the Church of Latter-day Omnians, who's a guy named the Reverend Mr. Stackpole, stands up. And his whole argument is just to say that, yeah, our world is round. It really is. And therefore, we should have this round world. And he really doesn't have any better argument than that. And the patrician, of course, is like, excuse me, um, just not that long ago, we built an aircraft and we sailed to the edge of the world and we pushed it off the edge and it flew around it and we saw all the elephants and we landed on the little moon and we saw the turtle. We know they're real. And people have dangled things over the edge and they've seen the turtle's head and its flippers. Like, we know that we really are on a turtle. What What are you talking about? And he just says it doesn't matter. Uh, and he sort of returns more to this later on. But he eventually just says, it doesn't matter what the truth is. This is about what do I believe? And you're like, yeah, but why do you believe it when you know it's not true? Like, that's weird. <laughs> that's weird. That's not what faith means. That's not what belief means either. But yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Also, round doesn't mean spherical, but. Mm. And I think this is where the fiction part starts to fall apart. Like, there's some fun bits that happen during the trial. But the trial itself, I mean, first of all, it's so short. There's like. One argument from the plaintiffs, one speech from Ponder Stibbons, and then Om shows up, and then there's some violence. As his witness with Om, <laughs> that was a yeah. Good, we'll, yeah. we'll get to that. That was quite fun. <laughs> but 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 the, it's so short. There's no good arguments from either side. There's not really anything to arbitrate. It doesn't make any sense that it's come in front of the patrician. And it hasn't just been thrown out. Like they have nothing more to say than their original call of this is infringing our intellectual property. Apparently. It's so weird. I just I just thought this is not a good courtroom drama. <laughs> you know, we've talked before on the podcast about wouldn't it be cool if there was a Discworld courtroom drama? Um, it could be, and in fact, I think when we were talking about Thud, we thought it could be called The Good Dwarf mm-hmm. and it could have uh, Cheery in it and it would be really fun. Um, but this is not that. It's really not that. I mean, if anything, the only, the real world thing that it reminded me of, and this is an obvious touchstone, is the Scopes Monkey trial, right? Where, they're like, you can't exhibit these things and say that humans evolved from apes because that's against our religious belief and that's blasphemy. And that was basically a show trial. Like, it wasn't particularly serious either. But it went on for longer and had people had a lot more to say than in this one. <laughs> well, they're near the end of the book. They're like, oh, we've got to tie things off. <laughs> I mean, am I, am I alone in this? What did, we th- what did we think about the court case? Was it ridiculous? Was it, was it fun? What, what do we think? I thought it was there to show that religious people are stupid and their arguments make no sense. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much it. Like the Mr. Stackpole is the straw man. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's what Stackpole means. He's a stack of straw on a pole. And the thing that really got me was when he said, you know, I'm a priest of Omnia and I'm usually to be addressed as reverend, and Lord Vetinari says, oh, I'll keep that in mind, Mr. Stackpole, which is the fabulous thing from the patrician. But titles are all made up. Everyone calls the patrician Lord that's in itself like a made-up title. Hmm. So there are only two times when I use the title reverend and 
One is when I'm arguing with politicians and the other is when I'm with the church that doesn't ordain women. <laughs> and so on those two occasions, I will demand to be addressed as a reverend, occasionally reverend doctor. So I'm not particularly precious about it. <laughs> but that bit was just, oh, yes, not only are religious people stupid, they also use silly made-up titles. It's like, well, all titles are silly and made up. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I use the title doctor in pretty much the exact same situations. But it's the only times they're useful. But, yes, they're all made, they're all made up. They're all. I have to admit, I read it more as a power move from the patrician just saying, I don't respect you specifically because he does use a title for Mightily Oats when he shows up. He calls him Pastor Oats, which is not, I mean, he's got other titles. He's also, I think, got a title quite reverend, if I remember rightly. But he doesn't use that title. He calls him Pastor. But he does say Pastor Oates. He doesn't say Mr. Oates or call him by his first name. So I thought that was like a power move of, I don't respect you. You're you're a jerk and you're wasting my time. And I'm the patrician. But I, I did read it going, oh, I asked my friend Avril, the Reverend Avril, to read this book. And I feel really bad right now. That's okay. You are neither a politician nor a church that doesn't ordain women. So I don't actually use that title with you. That's true. Although I did use it at the top of the podcast, so I hope you'll, you'll excuse me for giving that context. <laughs> Look, we we can finish off what happens at the trial pretty quickly because it doesn't – I mean, well, the next scene, the next couple of scenes are probably where it gets the most interesting because Ridcully talks to the other wizards. What are we going to do? Oh, well, they're going to argue that the Discworld is special and weird and we're going to go, great, yeah, it is because it's on a turtle and that proves our point. So we'll just let them hang themselves <laughs> with their own argument. But this is where we get the flashback of when they're talking about this, because the dean and the arch-chancellor get into this argument about the nature of gods, where the dean kind of basically just says, yeah, gods are useless, we shouldn't really be thinking about them at all. And Ridcully's like, what? But we we actually, we do have them, you know, they do, they exist, like they're a thing. And there's this sort of silence where they have this sort of tense disagreement. And that triggers in Marjorie for some reason, it doesn't quite, it didn't quite gel for me why she would think of this, but it sort of sends her back in her memory. And she has this flashback of what happened with her dad, who was a reverend as previously established. But when his wife died, there's just this one line, like, and it doesn't go into any depth about this. And also it doesn't really fit. And I'm sure, Avril, you'll have something to say about this, but it doesn't really fit my understanding of how, you know, reverends in particular deal with or understand death. But he, there's just this line that her mother died and so her father left the hospital and put his dog collar in the bin, which is like, okay, he's rejected his faith. But then that's not the story because slightly afterwards, she, who is explained is, you know, the very sort of firm atheist daughter of a reverend, goes back to see him and he's back to insisting that, no, she's in the arms of God now and everything is okay. And she's like upset about this. And I'm like, this feels like a weird I really wasn't quite sure where that was going. Like, it seemed like to be trying to say two or three different things at once with that sort of fictional bit, and it didn't quite work for me. What did What did you all think about it? I've got a real Bambi attitude at the moment now where I'm just kind of like, I feel like I've got nothing nice to say about the book anymore, so I'm just kind of like, stop kicking him, he's down. As in, not for me, but as in, it didn't feel good. I didn't like it is where I am on that, and I agree it's very confusing. And what is it adding to the text? Yeah, I found it weird. I can absolutely understand that if your wife has just died, you would remove your dog collar, partly because when you're wearing it, you're identifying yourself as clergy, and that means that you are available for anyone who needs your help. Mm, yeah. 
So if I saw someone doing that, I'd go, okay, for the moment he is in grief and he is not available for everyone else's problems. Yeah. Right now I'm a husband and a father. I'm not a pastor. Yeah. Yeah. yeah at the moment. In fact, I have no idea why he would be wearing the dog collar in the first place at that point. Like if you're sitting by your wife's bedside, you're there as a husband, you're not there as a priest. Hmm. You're off duty. Yeah. But this is where I really disliked Marjorie because she is so incensed and horrified that he is talking without a shred of evidence about her mother being in God's embrace. And I'm just thinking, Marjorie, it's comforting your father. He's lost his wife. This is some like he's not saying, and she's in God's embrace in heaven, which is, you know, two miles above the, you know, atmosphere. Mm. It's really nebulous and it's obviously a comfort to him. And you're getting upset because he doesn't have evidence for something that is comforting him after his wife's death. Like, what are you on? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It it did not. And also it's really, I think the other thing that I find really confusing about this flashback is they don't talk about him just taking the collar off. They talk about him putting it in the bin, which is clearly meant to illustrate I'm throwing my faith away, And but then he's still got it a moment later and it's very confusing imagery. I also, it's Marjorie is choosing to interpret her father literally. Yeah. And here we are again trying to present the argument that people should not interpret a particular story or set of stories literally. They're mischaracterising faith and belief in those stories and yet she's the one taking something literally that should not be taken literally or interpreted literally so it's it's sort of again that a poor argument against a poor argument it's just not coherent it's a straw man and here's the big stick again coming along to beat it yeah also immediately after this There's the story of the dreadful tidal wave that had almost destroyed our small country and Mm -hmm. people had found someone alive. Um, They'd heard faint cries from below and the newspapers had called it a miracle and she had gone ballistic, screaming to the world at large it wasn't a bloody miracle. And she then goes and says it was people, everyday people, helping other people, acknowledging them as people like themselves, a triumph for the commonality of mankind and the knowledge slewed into our genes that the person who you helped today might be the person who would pull you out from under a burning car tomorrow. And I'm going, oh, okay, so they've now solved the altruism question (laughs) that was in one of the first books when, you know, what is altruism? It is the knowledge in our genes that we need to help each other. Hmm. And I, I, she had gone ballistic screaming to the world at large. I did not scream to the world at large, but I did go ballistic going, a bloody miracle in this situation would be people in a wealthy country modifying their own consumption on the understanding that what they were doing in their country was going to affect people in small island nations who might end up having, you know, tidal waves. Yeah. That would be a bloody miracle. And I know it would be a bloody miracle because my church has been arguing for it for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Australians, we're a really wealthy country. Maybe we should stop digging up fossil fuels and burning them because that's going to destroy Pacific nations. <laughs> yep. This yep. whole idea about, oh, well, it's the commonality of people because the person you help today might be the person who would pull you out from under a burning car tomorrow is great if you're living in a village. We don't live in villages anymore and what we do on one nation affects other nations and we are still really, really crap at coming to terms with that. Yeah, and this is another way where the, this book does not engage with any kind of modern understanding 
of the modern world, of, of the sort of social and political reality of 2013, you know, let alone yeah. 2023. It's not present in the book. Like they talk about things in such simple terms and they, you know, this, it's, it's in the way they talk about religion. It's in the way they talk about science. Like they are not sociologists. They're not anthropologists. They're not, they don't understand any of this stuff. And it's, it's, yeah. Oh. And I also don't claim to, because I don't come from a religious background and my family is not religious. So I don't claim to come at this from a religious perspective, but it's kind of like that joke, um, which ultimately aims to take a blow at blind religion, but about a man standing on a roof as the floodwaters are rising and he prays to God to help him. And a guy shows up in a boat and he goes, no, no, God will save me. And then two more guys come up with boats and he says, no, no, God will save me. And then he drowns and he gets to heaven and he's like, why didn't you save me? And God's like, I sent three boats. So it comes back to their thing at the beginning where it's like interpretation of the text matters. But in this miracle scenario, they're saying, oh, well, it's the genes and it's the altruism of man that brings people together to to save these people under the buildings. But arguably from another perspective, it could be, and again, I'm not from a religious perspective, so I don't know if this is how someone would think, it could be God working through man to come together to save someone. So I don't really understand that as Marjorie's example of religion is mm. nonsense. Yeah. And um, the churches I'm involved in do a lot of pre-disaster preparation work in Pacific Island nations because a lot of Pacific Island nations, the church is one of the strongest institutions you've got. And one of the reasons that we are told to do that, apart from the fact that why wouldn't you do it, is these are not simply fellow human beings, but these are your siblings. Like these people belong to a church, you belong to a church, therefore you are siblings. Hmm. And later on, they're talking about, oh, well, when all religions say take care of other human beings, that's just, you know, standard. That's what everyone does. And I'm thinking, no, you think that's standard because you've grown up in an England that has been strongly influenced by the Church of England. It's not actually standard for many human beings to naturally care beyond their immediate family and friends. Mm. And I'm always really full of admiration for the atheists who just do that without needing to be reminded. I frequently need to be reminded. But one of the things that religions do and one of the reasons religions have survived so long is because they say it's not just the people who look like you that you should care about and it's not just those in your immediate vicinity that you need to think about. Every human being is important, even the ones in other countries that don't look like you, and that's actually quite unnatural in many ways. Yeah. And they're just going, oh, no, that's that's automatic. That's what every human being does. And it's like, have you ever looked at human history? <laughs> yeah. I actually thought this bit was going somewhere totally different, right? When she says, that's not a miracle, like there's a line in a previous Terry Pratchett book where he makes the point that just because something is bad doesn't make it any less miraculous if it's unlikely than something that's good. And I thought that's what she was going to say. This isn't the miracle. The miracle is a tidal wave came out of nowhere and smashed them all to bits. And I'm like, that is also not necessarily a great argument. Like we can see why the tidal wave happened. We know that's not miraculous. But the, but you're right in that also the, the cultures that we have, because they make the point that you don't need a religion to have those beliefs. I'm like, sure, you don't need one maybe. But the reason that we have them is because all of our modern cultures are based on cultures that were very religious and that's where those ideas were established and reinforced, you know? That book was Nation, by the way, where the, they talk about miracles as being negative events as well as the positive events and it's Daphne talking about her mother dying. Oh, yes. 
All right, look, well, we get, we're at the crux now. We have the trial. The hearing is not a trial. The hearing happens. Mr. Stackpole speaks. Ponder runs off and brings back Roundwell because the patrician says, I want to see it. He gives a speech about how it was created, what happened, the fact that the dean stuck his fingers in and wiggled them about, which gives rise to a fiction chapter called Does God Wiggle His Fingers? This leads to a slight discussion about the fact that there are no gods on Roundworld in the Roundworld bottle universe. And the patrician is like, oh, really? But I find the gods quite useful. I pray to Narrativia whenever I'm writing in my journal, which is, I think, the first time we hear Narrativia being spoken of as a, a god in the Discworld, or certainly the first time I've come across it for the podcast. And that leads Marjorie to sort of just burst out and say, you know what? People doing religion have done a lot of dodgy stuff on my world and it hasn't fixed anything for us which isn't quite how she puts it. It's it's slightly more nuanced than that, but it is pretty, again, it didn't feel like it really stemmed from what was being said in the room or from what her feelings were said to be in the previous thing. It all felt a little bit like there was a lot missing. And I think that's just because this fiction is so short, we just miss a lot of nuance and character building stuff. But anyway, she has this outburst, which means she has to introduce herself, which I thought was like, oh, great, now she's going to be part of the hearing. But no, because as immediately as she introduces herself, that's when Mightily Oates arrives and it's just all about him, which is fine because he was a great character and I'm so glad that we get to see him again. But now he's kind of, you know, in his walk in the earth doing Om's will, got my hand axe strapped to my back kind of cool priest kind of uh, face, which I thought was pretty good. He's a bit more like a vampire slayer now than anything else, which is appropriate given, <laughs> you know, the ending of Carpe Jugulum. But yeah, he comes in and basically says, look, I'm representing mainstream omnism. The patrician has asked me to come here. And I just want to say, we don't think the disc is round. That's ridiculous. These people don't speak for us. And if you want my advice and you have asked for it, I don't think anybody owns it, not even the people who live on it. But I think the wizards who are trying to figure out how it works and who are, you know, have the real spirit of inquiry and the search for truth are the perfect people to be stewards of it. So you should let them keep it. and Don't give it to these jerks, basically. And the patrician is just like, yes, case closed. Um, except Mr. Sackpole doesn't like that. So he prays to Om and Om shows up wearing some nice evening gear and on his way to a party in Valhalla, which is very, there's several very Douglas Adams moments in this book. This is one where a god shows up on their way to a party. There's also a line later on, which is a very Douglas Adams line in one of the nonfiction chapters about how the puddle shouldn't be surprised that it's exactly the right shape to fit in the hole that it's in. Uh, and I'm like, yes, Douglas Adams wrote that exact line to talk about the anthropic principle. But yes, Om shows up and basically tells Mr. Stagpole to get wrecked. Yeah. Uh, he's like, no, you're wrong. Like, we don't, we, ne I never believed that the earth was round. You know where you got the idea from? You got the idea because when Ponder Stibbons turned on his new magical experiment, not only did Marjorie Dore go from round world into Discworld, but the very idea of a flat earth went from Discworld into the past of round world. And at the same time, the very idea of a round world went from round world into the past of the Discworld. And that's where you and your branch of Omnism got that idea. It didn't come from me. And I went and looked this up and absolutely he has that discussion with brother in Small Gods where he's like, that's ridiculous. People would fall off the bottom. I never said that the earth was round. <laughs> um, and so it all kind of fits in. And look, this whole sequence felt a bit like a kind of militant atheist wet dream. It's like, yeah, you pray to God and God shows up and tells you to get stuffed. <laughs> I'm like, that's not, come on. That's not Yeah, cool. except the, the comment about Om, you know, Stackpole saying they have committed blasphemy. And Om says, if they have, I can deal with it myself. I don't need your help, which is 
absolutely my argument whenever anyone suggests anything is blasphemous. It's like, well, if it's blasphemous, God is big enough to take care of it. That is not up to us. Mm. So yay on for that. Yeah. (sighs) Good on him. Yeah, he's actually, he's much more reasonable in his modern incarnation than he he used to be. Uh, But he vanishes having said his piece and basically said, you're on your own, mate. And Mrs. Tackpole doesn't like that either. And he argued, this is where he makes the argument that, again, is very cartoony representation of a religious person. He says, look, it doesn't matter what the truth is. What matters is what we believe. And we believe the world is round, so you should give it to us. And they're like, no. And he says, well, we're not taking no for an answer. And that's when the zealots come out with their knives and try to kill the patrician and steal the round world. That's not a belief. This is a belief. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's also where Marjorie goes into action and punches one of them in the dick, <laughs> which was great. Uh, and then chases the other one who's got the globe. As she chases after him, he turns around and throws it at her and she manages to, to catch it. Um, but then gets, follows him into an alley where she's like, Oh, he's got a knife. Now what do I do? And then she's saved by Angua and Sally, which is nice. But then that's basically the end of the main plot and all the rest of the fiction is, her deciding after a couple of days that she is going to go home because, you know, otherwise what's the council going to do to my library when I'm not there? And says her goodbyes and they send her home. And there's an epilogue where she not only thinks that the Bible should go on the fantasy and science fiction shelf, but actually shelves it there, which I am pretty sure would get you fired as a librarian. <laughs> that is inappropriate behavior. Like Adrian Mole does something similar in one of his books. Like he he like puts all of like the Jane just Jane Austens and all the Janes into like the light fiction or like the rom com section. It's it's bit bad. <laughs> yeah, seems mean and unnecessary. And she's mad that um the Richard Dawkins books get written on. Oh yes, the second or third time Richard Dawkins gets a look in. We did discuss this uh, Avril and I when we were looking at this book as to is this pre or post the worst of his many controversies? And it is sadly post the sort of point where you could conceivably think Richard Dawkins was an okay person to be the face of anything, let alone rational thought and atheism. Yes, because this was after many of the horrendous sexist things he's done. I think we've mentioned this previously on the podcast, but there is a Wikipedia page just for his controversies separate to his main biography, which, you know, says something. Yeah, I I looked it up and it was before he said all the world's Muslims have fewer Nobel Prizes than Trinity College, Cambridge, and it is before he said that it would be immoral not to abort a fetus with Down syndrome. So it is before some of his really awful stuff. Okay. It is, however, after his Dear Muslimer letter. Yes. I think it's also after the elevator incident, if I'm remembering rightly. But look, I'll look that up. I'll put it in the show notes. I'll read um, the page later and just have a horrifying time. It's going to be great. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, basically, I don't believe in Marjorie as a woman because... I think a woman of her intelligence would have seen Dawkins' sexism and gone, you are not my role model. Yeah, he was pretty well established as a, a bit of a sexist dinosaur by this time. So that was disappointing. And I should say, we, we were singling out Dawkins here, but there are a few other people cited in the book who are also probably not great people to cite, including Stephen Pinker, who I don't know if he has any specific controversies, but certainly has courted and worked with a lot of people who believe some very racist and horrible things. Um, so by association, maybe not someone you want to rely on for your arguments. And also Christopher Hitchens gets a mention like, well, have we looked at how Christopher Hitchens supported the invasion of Iraq at a time when every church except a very small number in America was going, don't invade another country, people will end up dead. 
Yeah. I mean, they also, they, speaking of that sort of thing, they also swept under the, you know, they're talking about that guy who, who started what eventually became the Flat Earth Society and he did all that dodgy stuff. They just mention in passing, oh, he got in trouble for some sexual peccadilloes. They never say what those things are. And then later on they say, oh, and in this year he married this 16-year-old and had 14 children. He was like 47 when he did that. I'm like, that's oh, not gross. cool. That's yeah. why are you talking so much about this guy and mentioning these, like either don't mention that or talk about how gross he was. Like, don't just say it like it's just a thing that doesn't matter. Yeah. Anyway. Oh, oh, and at the very end, oh yeah, uh, they quote a comedian saying atheism is a religion like not collecting stamps is a hobby. Mm. And I go, yeah, that's funny. It is as though this is a book about bowling where every so often they keep saying, oh, by the way, we're not collecting stamps. <laughs> yeah, play that. But they're having a ball doing it. I'm sorry for that joke, um, but I'm not. Look, I think we should move on to questions, unless there are any last bits anyone wants to talk about as favourites. Favourites, huh? <laughs> I mean, look, it's difficult. The last couple of nonfiction chapters in particular really just kind of really go into isn't religion silly territory, particularly the last one, which I just oh, did not like. Anyway. I feel like, yeah. I, I mean, to say something positive, I feel like they handled in some ways women a little bit better, not like overall, but in early ones, I think a, a criticism I made was that when they talked about a scientist, they'd regularly default to he, and that did not happen as much in this one. The only default to he that I saw was of one of the obscure religions that they held up as an example. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm just trying to find something positive to say, and that was something I noticed along the way that it, it felt a bit better on that respect. Yeah. Well, what about you two? I mean, uh, maybe maybe not favourites. I could see from the look on your faces, but uh, any bits you want to ask about, maybe? Okay. Can you guys explain what Jack's grandfather was on about with the wasp and the queen bee? Oh, they kind of do unpack that. And I don't know if this is really what he meant, but the way that they interpret it in the book, they say that he meant that you're either out for yourself like a wasp or you're thinking about your community like a bee, like the queen bee. That's how they interpreted it. And I was like, I guess that's what it means. How does that relate to his fish? Well, he made lots of money from those fish, you know, and his yeah. grandfather was certainly there. But I, because I, when I first read it, what I actually thought he was saying is this is where we find out if you're actually any good or if you're a pest, right? Are you useful to this family or are you useless was what I thought. Like, you know, are you the queen bee, which means we can make our own honey and, and start a hive and we'll be fine. Or are you a wasp? I, I need to swat you with a newspaper and chase you out the house because you're wasting all your money on this thing that's not going to help us. But you the know? fish thing in the end, it turns out like it was luck. So like, how did, like, does it say that you're a wasp or a bee through to, by luck or by like your own drive and self? Because at the end it was like, oh, I'd accidentally bought the wrong fish. And if yeah. I hadn't like accidentally done this, then they wouldn't have mated. And it's just a, the only thing that he did that was useful was buying several fish. Yeah, I found that so confusing. There were a few like dodgy anecdotes. Like there was the one about he had that friend who's a plumber who's got all these academic mates who are not a plumber, an electrician, yes. and they don't understand that you have to wire up a electrical socket. I'm like. Who are these people you've made up? Oh, my God. The story about his children, that was absolutely not real, like where all three of them like asked about rainbows and like that's not how refraction works in prisms, actually. Like all three of them saying in sync like this thing. I'm like, that is real. Like my child said this on Twitter yeah. energy. Like it was. Oh, and the joke they got wrong is the story of the rabbis arguing and then God 
intervenes and says one of them's yeah. right and then the other rabbi goes oh well now it's just two against two and what the yeah. joke means is that jews will argue about anything and rabbis you know why does a rabbi answer a question with a question why shouldn't a rabbi answer a question with a question <laughs> yeah you know, rabbi but they're going upon reflection the joke works because we know it wouldn't be like that god could solve the problem of disbelief by writing his name across the sky in letters of fire a kilometer high it's not yeah yeah that, i agree with you that is not why the joke works that is not why the joke like the joke is fine but yes their explanation of the joke they are not comedy writers they do not understand no they should go to your class well look i mean <laughs> they had terry pratchett on hand if he couldn't explain to them how the joke worked uh, I don't think I could either. Look, let's get to some listener questions. All right. So our first question is from Molika via Discord. Uh, wouldn't it be nice to have a bit more to the Discord side of the story? Everything felt incredibly short, and even new characters like Marjorie Daw don't really get much chance to develop. Strong agree from me. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Particularly Same. in this one. And even uh, Science of Discworld 3 was like lots happened. It was still quite brief, but stuff happened and it was exciting. And there was that lovely bit. Oh, I don't want to spoil it because you haven't read it. But it's this lovely bit at the end that's very much like a beloved Doctor Who episode. Um, so it's quite nice. But, yeah, this just felt like so little happened. And then the bit that was meant to be the story it just happened so quickly. Yeah, it could have done with a lot more expansion, I think. Molokov's second question, as the science books went on, it was clear that although Ian and Jack had lots they wanted to say, Terry either didn't want or didn't have the time to write much of a corresponding Discworld story. It's barely there in book four as opposed to book one. When should the series have stopped? And in which of the books did the Discworld part become too small for the science parts to be enjoyable? I know Charlotte has an answer to this. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, it should have stopped in book one. But, I mean... I wonder, if, I think Ben's idea about how the books was written is actually an important consideration here. So um, if the books are written in a way where Terry writes the fiction and then the scientists come in and go, oh, here's a good opportunity for us to talk about this, here's a good opportunity for us to talk about this, here's a good opportunity for us to talk about this, then maybe um, – this was as much as Terry wanted to write. But if it was a back and forth thing, then maybe Terry's reticence to say much more comes from what what was returned. I don't know. Like, Yeah. It's really hmm. hard to reconcile that with, like we know he was so careful and forthright about what he wanted to do with Discworld. It was his baby. No one ever got to do anything with it and still doesn't without his say-so or the say-so of his representatives on earth, as they like to be called. I think that's a delightful phrase, which means that this wouldn't have happened unless he was happy with what was going on. But certainly the first book, we know there was a lot of back and forth. Um, in fact, Jack and Ian came up with the idea of the round world experiment, which Terry Pratchett tweaked and made work in the Discworld. But yeah, I just don't know about this one. I don't know what the process was like. There's some great stuff in the second two. I really think the fourth one is the worst. <laughs> It's the worst. It's the worst. And considering how I felt about the second one, that's saying something. I looked at a video from an event at Waterstones when this was released that had the three of them, and somebody was asking about how they worked. And Terry started talking about Darwin's life. He was talking about the third book rather than the fourth, because mm -hmm. I was I was trying to get a sense of how this fourth book had been written. And looking at that, it kind of looked like the third book. That was where his his interest was despite the fact that they were launching the fourth book at the very <laughs> event at which he was speaking. 
Well, we know they, they didn't think they'd do another one after the fourth one. And it was 10 years between books. So, yeah, who knows? So our next question comes from Val M via Discord. I haven't read the science series because I usually do Pratchett on audio, so I assume these wouldn't be narrative enough. And, of course, I'd miss pictures and diagrams. I mean, the implication there is, like, is it worth listening to on audio um, and do you lose out, I guess? Well, it, for one thing, I think this might have been addressed in the, in the Discord when Val asked this, but um, the, there really aren't any diagrams uh, in the books. Mm. Uh, they don't make any use of any diagrams. I think they actually they talk quite proudly in the first one about how there's only one or two equations in the whole book even. So you're not missing out. I love a diagram, though, and a map. I'd, well, yeah, I love a diagram and a map, but there's none in any of these books, so you don't get any of that. I just, I just, I would like a map in every book. It's just <laughs> taking that opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what they do with the audio is they actually have a different narrator for the fiction chapters and the non-fiction chapters. Um, now I assume these audiobooks are still available because they've taken down a lot of the old ones now that they've released the new ones. But the fiction chapters read by Stephen Briggs, who did a lot of the unabridged versions of the Discworld novels. And then the non-fiction chapters are read by Michael Fenton Stevens, who has read a lot of uh, other Pratchett stuff, including the Long Earth books. Yeah, I haven't listened to them, but they, I think they'd be listenable. Certainly, you could skip to just the fiction chapters if you just want the story bits, if you can get hold of them. Speaking on that topic, our next question comes from Sven via Discord. Would the non-science part of the Science of Discworld series be a good standalone book? In my eyes, we get some of the best unseen university stuff in there, a solid rinse wind, etc. So maybe a more academic background was needed to get the wizards and faculty to shine. It's a good question. I, I actually, I really like the fiction parts of the first three. Mm. This one, as we've discussed, left me a bit cold, but there were some nice things in it. So, yeah, I think so. I, I mean, I think if it had just been a fiction book about the wizards inventing round world and trying to figure it out, that could have been a fun book on its own. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it would need more. I, like, There's not enough in just the fiction chapters of the first three books. And particularly the first one, there's not really much of a plot. They just do some stuff. Like there's no overarching plot. They don't have any goal. In the second and third ones, they kind of fix that problem. In the fourth one, they don't really go far enough with the goal or, or indeed the, the story to get there. But the second and third ones have got a pretty solid plot, as simple as they are. But, uh, yeah, I, I think they could work. Yeah, if you just took out the core idea of what if the wizards invented our world and that existed within their university and then took stories off of that, I, I don't think necessarily beat by beat every plot point that was included across the four books should be in if it's one book rather than... Yeah. in a series, I think that would be quite interesting. Like the Darwin stuff and the Shakespeare stuff would be cool to see in like melded in. I'm not sure how much of this one I'd want to see in there. Maybe some of the ideas put through the court case fleshed out a bit more with nuance could be in, an interesting mm. inclusion. Yeah. yeah. I think there's good potential there, but I agree that it would need reshaping and more things added. I can see a kind of uh, a subplot where someone else gets hold of the round world and they start doing the kind of thing that happens in the watch TV show where the wizards take ideas from round world and try to make them in their world, which explains the kind of weird techno punk kind of aesthetic of the TV show, uh, which I thought was a, a fine idea. I didn't, I don't know if that was executed especially well, but it was, it was a good idea. And you could do something like that in the context of Discworld. And, but I think the wizards then would have to be the ones trying to fix that problem, not creating it themselves. Mm. 
All right. So our final question comes from Joel Mullen via Discord. How canon are these stories to you, considering only the Discord chapters? And are the different science installments the same or different levels of canon again to you? So before we answer, I'd like to say that um, my brain has like purged each of these books from my mind almost <laughs> immediately um, because I didn't really enjoy them that much. Like there's bits that I did. So it's hard for me to rank them against one another. And I'm also conscious that uh, Avril, you might not, have you read all of them? No, no, I haven't. Sorry. Yeah. So that's totally fine because I think it's just so of the ones you've read or even just this one, how canon is it to you? How much of the actual Discord stuff do you think actually happened? I'm going to stop saying the same question in different ways. Um, <laughs> I think the book has done that to me. <laughs> well, part oh, of no. this, this podcast discussion is now canon to me, which is that Pastor Oates is now a vampire slayer. So, Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's well, all to it. He's got the straps. He's got the axe. You know, he's walking the earth. I think, yeah. Well, he's not walking the earth. He's sitting on an ass. Well, that, that's true. He's riding an ass across the disc. He's not. Yeah. There's no walking or earth involved. Yeah, but that um, is now definitely canon. And he goes back to Lanka every now and then to see his sweetheart Agnes. They have an understanding. Yes. Um. I look. I I've got an answer. Do you, Do you want to hear my answer to this? I would love to hear your answer to this. I feel that they are all canon. Certainly the first three, because things that happen in them do get referenced in the other books. So, for example, Rince Wind's accumulation of titles is referenced in Unseen Academicals, if I remember rightly. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the round world itself is ever mentioned, but a couple of concepts that originated in the Science of Discworld books do show up in other books. Mostly, I think, slewed and slewed derivatives, <laughs> I think, I think are mentioned in one of the other books that's not a Science of Discworld book. But I think they are canon in terms of the fictional stuff that happens. I would like it if parts of this one were not, but really I don't because because the other thing I don't think I mentioned this when we were reading earlier, but Ridcully comes across as a bit sexist in this book in a slightly uncomfortable way. Like he sort of he he doesn't get into the really inappropriate sort of angle, but some of the things he thinks and says to Marjorie are a little bit hmm, yeah, I don't know about that. And that doesn't seem to gel with how we usually think of him. I mean, other parts of his personality, I think, shine through. There's that great line about him knowing when to twinkle and when to not in order Mm. to be charming. And I thought that's very, I love that. But yeah, yeah, so if there was one that I would leave out, it'd be this one. Just keeping that idea of of Oates as a vampire slayer. I think that would be great. (laughs) And maybe the bit where Rince Wind likes Australia. But not the bit where Terry Pratchett is real on the round world, because that's too weird. I don't like that. I want that to be real. Like I would, I think I would, I want that bit specifically to be canon. Now if I'm it try- is indeed even the text. I'm trying to think if, well, I think it's, it's subtly hinted because a guy dressed as a wizard people assume is supporting the orangutan foundation. And I, I don't know what other confluence of factors would lead to that. People dress up funny for marathons. That's just, true. Just, they just do. Just a coincidence. Yeah. I just okay. remembered one of the reasons I struggle with this being canon is Marjorie Dore is told that their library has every book possible, including the entire library of Alexandria, and then she wants to go to a court case rather than yeah. spending time in the library. I mean, she does spend two days touring that library, but that's not really long enough for every no. book conceivably ever existed. Yeah. I mean, I'd be. Could she have oh. arranged access from her library? Like, is that something you could potentially set up through, like, now that you've met them, you're like, oh, well, since you can come into our library, maybe a door could come into mine so I can go the see those whenever I want. Across. You'd have to. I mean, if you're told that every book that ever exists is available, you wouldn't. Or even, even ones that don't exist, like that theoretically could exist. Yeah. 
Well, here's a question then off the back of that. If you could go into the L space, that sounds like I'm an old man talking about the internets. If you could go into L space, <laughs> what book would you like? What would be top of your list? It doesn't have to be super top because I know that's like asking what's your favorite song or what's your favorite board game or, or film or something. That's too hard. But what's one that sort of leaps to mind that you would be like, I want to see that book. I want to read that book. Can you access death's books in the, in L space? Yeah. Why not? They're books. Well, the- It'd be one of those, but I don't know if it'd be mine or someone I'm interested in. But yeah, I I would choose at least if it's just one one of Death's books, and I'd have to think very carefully about whose. Wow. Okay. Okay, I would want more Jane Austen books, like the books she would have written if she hadn't died so young. Yeah. And I would also want the possible Emily Bronte's second book after Wuthering Heights. The oh. was that the one that got destroyed? Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. And following on from that, although it feels really bad to say so, I wouldn't mind seeing the things that were on Terry Pratchett's hard drive that got destroyed by a steamroller. Well, I mean, because remember, you, you can have the version of them from a universe where he finished them all. Yeah. So cool. you could read the finished versions that he would not object to anyone seeing. So I think okay. I, I would go with that and that would be okay. Yeah. Yep. I would do, and I also, I would add to that the books that Douglas Adams would have gone on to write. I mean, he had writing books, but, you know, I, I would read The Salmon of Doubt, like the actual book, novel version. And I would want to see a later collection of his nonfiction from like 2030, if he'd lived that long, of all the stuff he had to say about all our modern technology. Because I, you know, I'm one of those people who who misses his voice on that stuff because he had such interesting things to say, had such a good perspective on it, and he wrote so brilliantly about it. Um, yeah. I think that would be top of my list. Mm. Yeah. So you both have beautiful answers and I'm like, I would like the forbidden knowledge and to be super nosy. <laughs> but that's cool. I didn't see that coming. I was like, oh, okay. Okay. That's fair. I'm into it. As soon as they mentioned that, I can't remember which book it's in where I think it's one of the ones where um, Susan's mum is reading them casually. Isabel. Hmm. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I would never leave this place to be reading all these books. <laughs> Well, well look, I think it says a lot about us that um, we want to go and see, you know, the unwritten works by our favourite authors who died too soon. And Liz, you want to be very creepy <laughs> and read someone's <laughs> life history. I just want to know the truth, like the actual truth yeah. as opposed to the projected truth. Okay. Well, would it be, but are you talking about like someone you know personally or like a famous person who's influential or? No, so it would either be like. I'd want to read my own book potentially mm-hmm. or a family member who I didn't get to know and would have liked to have known that kind of like who like passed before oh. I did like someone from my own lineage mm-hmm. or great mystery, someone who was on the Mary Celeste and find out what actually happened there. That kind of like one oh. of those sort of scenarios. So I just want to solve some mysteries or get to know someone that, you know, would be important to me in a way that that wouldn't have gotten to meet. That's the split for me. Yeah. I think reading your own book would be worse than the worst therapy. <laughs> you know, when a psychologist makes you confront what you're actually thinking and doing, I think, yeah. Have, mm. oh, it, yeah, leave me, leave me my delusions and illusions, please. Yeah. When you get up to the bit where you're reading the book, oof, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's like, yeah, oh, wow, yeah. So thank you. Anyway, that what more could there be to say? I think there's that's it. Thank you both for <laughs> talking about a book that was great. Well, not not ideal. Um, <laughs> 
But I mean, uh, if we wanted to wrap it up, is there is there one last? Is there not one nice thing you can think of to say about the book? Is that a nice way to end the podcast? Maybe it is. Beautiful cover. <laughs> it's true. Um, struggling. Sorry, come back to me. <laughs> I think that says a lot to be, <laughs> to be honest. It got mm. us talking. That's true. That's true. We it brought us together on this day. Avril, did you? I got to meet Avril. That's true. Uh, brother remains one of my role models. That's fair. And we got to see Mildly Oates again. We did. I like him. He hasn't yeah. quite reached brother status as a role model, but I would recognise him as a colleague. Here's a nice question to end on for each of you. If people wanted to read a book about science and or religion that you would recommend over this one, is there one that you would recommend? Yes, I would recommend Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything. Great choice. Or Nation by Terry Pratchett. Very good. Avril? From the religious perspective, there's a collection of essays by the author Marilyn Robinson called The Givenness of Things, which uh, looks at a whole lot of science and religion stuff. Well, that sounds great. All right, those are both going into our episode notes. So, listener, if you want to check out some books that we probably don't hate as much as this one those are two good places to start (laughs) thank you both once again for joining us and of course thank you listener for joining us too we hope this episode hasn't been too much of a downer uh we'll be back to our regular loving terry pratchett kind of vibe next episode we hope as we cover one of his short stories another non-discworld short story this one one of his earlier ones it's called turntables of the night it's about record collectors djs and death, and who better to talk to us about such a short story than DJ and comedian Andrew McClelland. We're very happy to have him on the show, and we're very happy to discuss that story. You'll find it in the collection A Blink of the Screen, so please do read that and send in some questions. If you've got any questions about that, you can send them in with the hashtag Pratchat72 on social media, or if you've got questions or comments about this episode and... Look, I'll understand if you do. Um, please send them in using the hashtag Pratchat71. Uh, you'll find us in all the usual places. And, of course, you can email us as well. We're chat at pratchatpodcast.com. One other little bit of news. We are now an award-winning podcast. I don't want to make a big deal out of it, but we are very excited and chuffed and grateful to everyone who nominated and voted for us to win the Ditmar Award for Best Fan Publication in Any Medium. Uh, This is a local Australian science fiction fandom award, and we couldn't be more touched that the community were behind us and to be part of a great community of Australian fandom. So thank you. Thank you so much. What an honour. And a big shout out to Amy Kaufman as well, who was there at the (laughs) award ceremony. I was busy editing and I had forgotten when the ceremony was on. Amy contacted us so thank you Amy Uh, we really appreciate it and thank you too of course to all of our subscribers who keep the podcast going Uh, you make it possible to make the podcast without selling our souls I I don't know if we have souls after reading this book but whether or not we do we don't have to sell them Uh, so that's good that's nice Uh, if you want to support the podcast too you can do that for free just by telling anyone you think would be interested in the show or you can support us monetarily if you'd like Uh, you find all the details about that on our website basically by subscribing you help us keep going you get access to a backlog of bonus content and we put out more every now and then Uh, mostly at the moment that's just things that are cut out of episodes and I'm pretty sure there will be one or two from the much longer discussion we had about this book. But until next time, remember, if you're a librarian, 
The Bible goes under Dewey Decimal Number 220 for The Bible. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchetters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guests the Reverend Dr. Avril Hannah-Jones and Dr. Charlotte Pizarro. Pratchett is produced and edited by me on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our music is by David Ashton. You can find us on Twitter, Mastodon, Instagram, Blue Sky and Facebook and you can listen to our past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchettPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett71. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.